0: still, will ya? Does this help? Yeah, thanks.
1: Do you mean to tell me that you could have taken your hand out of that cuff at any time?
0: No, not at any time.
2: Only when it was funny. Come on, Eddie. Raise your sense of humor. he always is funny or only on days when he's wanted for murder? Listen, my
0: philosophy is this. If you don't have a good sense of humor, you're better off dead.
2: Welcome back, everybody, to Ramblin', an Amblin' podcast. The podcast where we dust off the files pertaining to the movies of Amblin' Entertainment, seeing what clues were left unturned and what paint marks may have been left behind. I am one half of your hosts, Andrew Godian. And I'm the other half, Joshua Glenn. And today we are joined by our friend, fellow Warwick film grad and now film executive with Anton Capital Entertainment, Jack Buckley. Welcome to Ramblin', Jack.
3: Hi oh, guys, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's truly a pleasure. What an intro as well, Andy.
2: <laughs> You're very welcome, my man. <laughs> so I'm nice nearly throwing bad you. boy <laughs> film executives. <so. laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Yeah. Wow. laughs> very much
2: the
3: bad boy of the industry. Uh, that's the reputation I'm building for myself. Not in that way. Steady on, we don't want any uh, yeah, no,
1: <laughs> problematic elements to our innocent podcast.
3: That's a good start. <laughs>
1: That's
0: a good start, isn't it? Scrap it. Start again.
2: All the better for having you here, man. It, it like you said, it's such a such a pleasure for all of us to be on here. We've known each other for a while, but I think the first first podcast episode together, so that feels feels like something. <laughs>
3: I think generally when we talk, we're the kind of personalities that just pretend they're on a podcast anyway. Like pretend <laughs> that there's like an interested audience hearing somewhere.
2: <laughs> yeah, there are some numbers i can i can, i can back that up <laughs> talk as if many We're doing many, okay. many people are listening
3: <laughs> so do you want to do the squarespace out now or
1: <laughs> there are other people that can help you make uh
2: websites <laughs> and that <laughs> <laughs> don't know too many off have right now but, uh... Uh,
3: free webs I, I used to have a free website when I was uh, I think when I was 13 years old and it was a where I plagiarized funny pics that I found online and just put them on my website and i tell everyone all about my website <laughs> also actually there was a real thing in my school where everyone had their own website and uh, you used to rank you used to put like your kind of dream couples in the school like you go oh I think so and so should go out with so and so and you would bribe other people in the school to pair you up with your crush on the website. And you could be like, oh, I don't know, I guess. Like, you know, Chloe's website said we should be a couple. Kind of mad, right? <laughs> Did like, that ever I... have
1: any real world impact?
3: Oh, of course not. I couldn't talk to a girl until <laughs> I was like
1: 16.
2: We had a very similar thing with Pixo. I don't know if you remember Pixo. You could put little tunes on there. <laughs> I used to draw film posters on there and put them up and be like, everyone, look at my art that I've traced. <laughs> I don't know what any of these
1: things are. I was a, a Bebo boy. I used to have my little my little videos pinned to the top of the Bebo, but I I I never was that creative with my websites. I was quite
2: an on-the-rails boy.
3: You were coding Miss... by that age, Josh.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> now, Mr. Buckley, you you join us for a chat of Amblin films, Amblin Entertainment and as a man who uh, kind of works in, on the kind of development and production side itself I feel you've, you're going to have a, some good insight into how these sort, of, these sort of things work so why don't you tell us a bit about what, what it is that you do at Anton and how it maybe kind of pertains to the sort of films that Amblin Entertainment are known for.
3: Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, with this particular film that we're going to be talking about today, there's a real link in the fact that I work on probably about 50% live action and 50% animated films. And so, I have a familiarity with like both both production methods and how both of them can be uh equally infuriating and laborious but also in a very very different ways. Um but essentially, you know, what 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 I do at Anton is just um what the find people at Amblin do really in that we're a sort of a much younger studio obviously than, uh, than Amblin um, building projects in the very beginning and also sort of you know the same kind of sensibilities as well we're very com- commercially driven as well all of the money uh, but also <laughs> very very talent driven um, and really just sort of like working pretty much within within genre uh, and trying to find distinctive ways of cracking genre, which uh, Amblin have made a significantly harder job by, you know, pretty much (laughs) owning every single genre. I think I was trying to kind of wrap my brains back to what my earliest possible memory of Amblin is. I think it's probably, it's kind of twofold. I think the first Amblin movie I saw was probably Land Before Time. And
2: good solid start
3: <laughs> yeah and i remember seeing the Amblin logo and it was sort of before i had seen et and just being like what on earth is that shape like <laughs> what what is that funky shape it's all jagged and it's weird and stuff and and it wasn't until i saw ET, no i went oh it's it's the it's the alien oh <laughs> um but i i, I just recall back in the days of like renting videos and i think it was basically about a weekly tradition in our family that we would go to the i grew up in the middle of nowhere in the countryside and so we would go to uh the the little shop in the village next to ours and they had a little back room it was just sort of like the most magical place you could possibly go into <laughs> because it was like it was like oh yeah these are all new films they weren't new films they were like VHS. they were films were about i can't remember what the 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 pathway to vhs releases was (laughs) then like three four years old movies yeah but um it was just like exploring all those titles and you know nine times out of ten it would be an Amblin title that we were taking home um and it was really like really my earliest cinema education probably came from those movies and i can really mark the point when i first started like realizing, oh, films are a thing I love Um, with, with things like Men in Black and Small Soldiers, just immediately yeah. nailing exactly what I wanted to see when I was <laughs> seven years old, eight years old. I was like, oh yeah, these movies are like tough and they're imaginative and they're creative and they're so kind of like tactile as well because obviously mm-hmm. there's still yeah. huge amounts of practical effects in those movies as well as the computer effects sort of, that started bleeding over at that point. Um, yeah, and I just think those stories are the first times where I was like, this this is something I can probably get obsessed with, I think. This is something that I can let <laughs> define my life. Like, this is something where I have to make sure that the bedsheets I sleep in are themed to this <laughs> particular world, yeah. to this movie. That, like, the bath liquid I use is is <laughs> is shaped like a dorganite, you know.
2: I think I had a chip hazard bathroom. <laughs> <Like bubble laughs> <Yeah. sauce. laughs> We went for the militaristic elite, apparently.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I'm I went not. for more earthy. Uh,
3: <laughs> but he used to tear off his head and then pour out the liquid from the neck. Pretty <laughs> grim, really. Wouldn't you? Dave <laughs> like, in that fluid. Um, but <laughs> but I, and and I think as also it's a pleasure to be on this podcast as well because I think we probably share that, like you know, our cine literacy really probably came from watching Amblin movies around that same point, really.
1: Yeah. It is funny because you don't think in the moment of uh, a connecting sort of fabric that links these things together. But then when you think back to the films, like you say, Men in Black and Small Soldiers being two big ones in our um, particular childhood in the 90s. And sort of going back and looking at them and saying, oh, yeah, these are all Amblin films. These are all, you know, these these will have a a shared production house in common. uh, It definitely, uh, you know, it makes sense in our development, I think.
2: Absolutely. Even that kind of description of the video rental shop I can really (laughs) really relate to because I remember our like the very first video rental shop that I can remember going to had this really dark room with all the adult titles and then just kind of at the end of the corridor was this brightly lit little room that just had all the kids movies in there (laughs) and that like you say it was that is largely populated with Amblin or like Amblin-esque ones Mm. that like like ones that you would really kind of pinpoint as thinking like that could be Amblin, I'm think like Honey, I shun't the Kids or or what have you. So and they're they're all kind of in that similar sort of spirit that is a very uniqueness soldier to that like 80s and 90s period, and it's something that like even to even today, some of the films that Amblin put out, I think some people might not beyond like the kind of big franchise stuff. Some people might not be that aware that Amblin is behind still mm. a lot of Cats stuff that is going out there cats being one cats <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll come
3: back for that
1: one <laughs> but I think another thing as well I think the reason that the 80s and 90s are so entrenched in Amblin's identity is because there's, there's that, I think there is that thing about opening, opening a chest be it uh, turning on the channel on Sunday afternoon or going into the back room of your local video shop and sort of being shown these titles laid out it's not like they're all available not to sound again sound like an old man yelling at the sky but not like they weren't all available all the time. You kind of had to be passed them down by an older cousin or you had to just happen to catch them on TV one Sunday. And that element of it being a very, very personal, tangible thing is so crucial to the ones that I think are the big ambling titles, the ones that are generally from the 80s and 90s before everything was so accessible all the time. There's something about the... uh, um, you know, um, wait and see aspect of Amblin makes it very special.
3: Definitely. And I just kind of, you know, beyond those titles like Men in Black and Small Soldiers, the only other thing I was as equally obsessed with, like kind of both of those titles at the time, was Star Wars. And it was probably like equal waiting. And it says so much that Men in Black, which was at the time just one film, and Small Soldiers, which was just one film. I held in the same regard as this trilogy mm. of, of huge world-building uh, uh, movies. And I think there's also a groundedness to even the most escapist emblem movies of, of that period and the period before it. There is a groundedness to it. It's very rare that you really kind of shoot off into space or explore a completely fantastical world. There's always an element of our world or our history or whatever mm-hmm. within it, which kind of, brings the magic so much closer to home
1: yeah a lot of real human emotion and speaking of that as is kind of one of the regular features on this podcast um I actually I'm not sure if we've spoken about this in the in the you know 10 whatever years that we've been friends now but um do you cry at E.T. Jack?
3: do I cry at E.T. you know I don't think I did Mm -hmm. I don't think I don't think E.T. moved me um (laughs) No.
1: Are you? Do you cry easily at films? Are you a regular film crier? or does it take much to sort of get tears out of that stone?
3: I. I well, this is a fascinating thing. I cry so easily, particularly if I watch a <laughs> film on a plane or something about oh, like, the, yeah. like the altitude. Okay, I, okay. I think I. It <laughs> it. I. I cried at the Hangover Part Two.
0: Um, <laughs> Which it part?
3: It's when they, I think it's part two, and they find them in the refrigerator, Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and there's kind of like, I, I, I can't remember, I think there's like a montage moment where you kind of see moments from the previous film in that film or something. And it was just like a moment where I was like, they've been on such a journey together, these guys. The
0: Wolfpack, right? That's what they call it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they've
3: been on such a journey and, you know, just there the points. where it was on ice. My and... wolf
0: pack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seeing
3: it through, um, yeah, I really cried at <laughs> that. Uh, uh, like there is, lot, there is a list as long as my arm of uh, movies yeah. that I cried to, but ET is actually not one of
1: them. You're keeping a tally of this, Andy. I I should be. I'll go. I will go no. back uh, and listen. I think
0: it, it's fairly see. even. Which it's way? I was going to
1: say which way does it, it fall? I, I um, feel like it's much more weighted towards you. I think I know. Petros c- cried um, in the Harry the, in the Head. The Griff cry. Side. Well, yeah, uh... I don't think I think I don't think Griff cried. I think who did we cry? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm, Yeah, there's not many of us so far. What, seventeen episodes in? Seventeen episodes in now, and only Eight. two that I can think of <laughs> who <who've> cried. <laughs> but anyway, you know, we're not here to yeah. discuss ET. That's old news, baby. Old news, baby.
0: We, we're talking we about. Uh, the house with a clock in its walls. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, I should watch the uh,
2: right I right? <laughs> <laughs> I sent in the wrong link. <laughs>
3: I'll come back to that
2: one. It's not quite a house with a clock in its walls. Time. It is uh, Robert Zemeckis' Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Time. The film released in the summer of nineteen eighty-eight. And before we take off on our journey into Toontown proper. We're going to hand over to our synopsis P.I. Joshua Glenn to let us in on the case. Hollywood 1947 Maroon cartoon star Roger Rabbit
1: played by Charles Fleischer can not get it together. He keeps fluffing his lines and his... Uh, oh, I can't do this for the entire thing. <laughs> he keeps... He keeps fluffing his lines as he's... i practiced the whole thing in that accent as well, but I can't do it in, in, re- in reality.
2: Do it on the night! Do it on the
1: night! <laughs> he keeps fluffing his lines uh, as his head is in the clouds over his wife, Jessica, played by Catherine Turner or voiced by Catherine Turner in an uncredited role. As R.K. Maroon himself says, his wife's poison, but he thinks she's Betty Crocker. Maroon, played by Alan Tilburn, therefore brings in Eddie Valiant, played by Bob Hoskins, a private dick who once worked closely with tomb-related cases, but who slipped into alcoholism and anti-tune rhetoric when a cartoon character killed his brother by dropping a piano on his head. Maroon wants Valiant to drive a wedge between Mr. and Mrs. Rabbitsey. He believes that Jessica is involved in an illicit tryst with local businessman and owner of Toontown, Marvin Acme, played by Stubby Kay so hires Valiant to snoop around and catch them in the act. Valiant would much rather not take the case, believe me, but the schmuck can't even play his tab in the bar owned by his lady friend Dolores, uh, played by Joanna Cassidy, so he doesn't really have a choice. He therefore heads to the Toon Review, a nightclub where Toons perform for brain humans, to watch Jessica perform. After her show, he hides around the back of her dressing room with his camera, ready to catch her playing patty cake with Acme. And catch them he does. Upon seeing the photos, Roger is absolutely distraught. He has a shot of booze and jumps through the window, declaring that they'll be happy as he does so. The next morning, Acme's dead. Roger is the prime suspect, and he finds himself in the crosshairs of Toontown's distinctly unnerving Judge Doom, played by Christopher Lloyd. Doom displays his zero-tolerance policy towards Toons by demonstrating his Toon-destroying concoction, that was hard to say, the dip on an unsuspecting, (laughs) adorable cartoon shoe. But all is not as it seems. Roger's co-star, Baby Herman, voiced by Lou Hirsch, turns up at Valiant's office insisting that Roger is innocent, pointing towards Acme's missing will, which would declare the fate of Toontown, as an indicator towards the real murderer. Jessica also approaches Valiant, and reveals that Maroon actually asked her to pose for those patty cake photos. What's more, the accused rabbit himself has attached himself to Valiant, literally, via a pair of handcuffs, and has begged him to help exonerate him. Valiant therefore has no choice but to tug at those loose threads. Who would want Acme Dead? What's the deal with Doom's conspicuously conspicuous makeup job? Why has Cloverleaf Industries bought up both the streetcar and Maroon cartoons? And perhaps most importantly, who framed Roger Rabbit? Very good. Very good. Very
3: nice. Josh, did you almost laugh at the word private debt? Oh no! I did not. You <laughs> get, don't paint an image
1: in the listener's head. I was, I think, uh composed. Apart from the start when I tripped over my funny accent, I think I was composed
2: and professional throughout the whole thing. I quite I, enjoyed that you kept like the. I quite enjoyed you kept like the C in the, in the writing. I'd instance. written this whole thing with a mind to reading it in the accent, but I couldn't.
3: You're joking! <laughs> you wrote C. <laughs> okay.
0: Wait,
1: hang on. Wait, let me find it. Where is it? <laughs> there um, it is.
2: Um, Control F. C.
1: <laughs> C, C. <laughs> yeah, Maroon wants Valiant to drive a wedge between Mister and Missus Rabbit. See, that's what. There you go. <laughs> uh, finally gets a bit. Yeah, much funnier the second time. Here. Yeah, right. <sighs> that was Jack
0: Buckley. Thank you for joining us, Jack. Let's Clap him
2: up. Now. Jack, was this very much one of those Amblin movies that was in that uh, <laughs> room of uh, kind of <laughs> entertainment enlightenment when you were younger and back in the video shop?
3: Very much so. I actually think we uh, had this one recorded off the telly, uh, which was always kind of the mark of quality film was one that you made the effort to record off the TV. I would love to know if that video still exists in like our family hall of, I don't know, God knows how you play it. <laughs> but um, I would just love to see the adverts that were like either side of that on, on ITV or whatever at the time. But no, it, it was. And I think the fascinating thing about this movie, and uh, I think it'll be something that we'll kind of dive into, I kind of had two discoveries of it. I had the myself as a child watching it, where well, obviously the appeal was the the absolute absurd notion of living in a world where cartoons kind of uh, live side by side with humans, all of that yeah. wackiness, all of the joy of seeing Mickey Mouse and Bugs and Daffy and Donalds in all of these scenes, like that that crazy mix, um, and all, all of the like tech savory uh, kind of wacky violence as well. Absolutely loving that stuff. And then I got it on DVD. I think possibly when I was twenty one or twenty two years old, I got it on DVD for Christmas. My cat bought it for me. Um, oh, good cat. In in a in a tradition that still goes up. Thirty years old, the cat still finds me presents. <laughs> um, incredibly, ever more decrepit cat five uh, buys, <laughs> buys me gifts. Um, and, and got me who frame Roger Rabbit, and I was like, ah, oh,
0: yeah, I still
3: love this movie, right? And I I think there is for people who I I think that a casual viewer probably would remember it as like a family film. Uh, and I remember watching it and being blown away by its like, ate the raunchiness of it all obviously.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Also just the, the homage and no perfect film noir you know, yeah. of, of everything. Yeah. The, the whole texture of the film through like every single element. Um, but also just it's it's pain and something that i've grown to appreciate more and more recently is that like it's painstaking detail and it's like historic depiction of los angeles and just everything that it's doing and that and how how that just adds so much more weight to this real world i don't know so i had these two discoveries one as a uh, child and one as an adult and it's kind of the two modes of viewing that i think that film welcomes as well and the reason yeah, why it was such a huge success and the reason why, you know, when they saw that book, when they saw Who Sensed Roger Rabbit, they kind of immediately knew that they had an opportunity for th- that kind of, um, you know, that triple threat, that co-viewing uh, uh, golden nugget, the, the thing that yeah. can get both kids and adults absolutely engaged. Mm-hmm.
2: Definitely. Because <clears throat> even like, just like, not to get too ahead of myself, but like, the the... the- You are right. There is that complete switch that so many of like films from your childhood, just not many of them actually genuinely have that kind of switch where you go from like loving it and appreciating it as one completely different thing at one age and then seeing it for something completely different, but equally as kind of interesting and fascinating um, when you're in your uh, later years.
3: I think also one thing that really now I have the privilege of working in animation. One thing I really really appreciate is just how a movie like this will never be made again, mm-hmm. and we can, yeah. we we'll, we'll touch on that later. But well, it's just yeah, it's such a rare experience to watch something and be like, yeah, well, this will no one will ever do this again. No one will ever take the time to to pull together that colossal team from five different countries who painted every single cell who worked out how to move the camera to make those animated characters in a world where we rig animation characters Mm -hmm. and it makes that process so much more sort of streamlined still painstakingly difficult but makes it much more of a a process as opposed to like a real Solid labor, mm, like um, yeah. the idea of someone going in. Unless you're like Chris Nolan and you're the kind of director that can just walk into a studio and be like, oh, "I want to do this," and they say, "Yeah, all right." Then, like <laughs> that, 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 Roger Rabbit isn't happening again, right? No. And it's probably why the the kind of touted sequel. Well, that was that was spoken about for like oh, well over a decade it just never happened and probably never well, it's, will happen.
1: it's not it's not fully i like we'll, we'll get into the sequel uh you know other side of our chat i'm sure but it's never fully gone i think zemeckis is still kind of talking about this terrific idea that's going around it's uh it's still there but if even if even he can't um you know get it off the ground. Malcolm, tells welcome you to marwin's ruined him
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> he's uh yeah he's, he's i don't know you make back to the future you make this uh you've kind of got you've kind of got pretty open car Blanche for a while yeah <laughs> you can make as many marwins and as many polar expresses as you choose and you still keep getting that money don't you
3: i mean on on, on that topic i guess it's kind of so interesting seeing that the previous filmography, like a movie mm-hmm. like Used Cars, which is so fun, but also dripping with cynicism mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. anarchy as well, and you kind yeah. of see that. You see that in Back to the Future, really. You see that. Anarchy, oh, definitely. You, see you do. That
0: Yeah, yeah. Cynicism
3: and that fun, and it's it's kind of that is the, the triple threat of Zemeckis in his best films. And then I kind of think there's a period after this where he starts working with just two of those. It's kind of like works like the triangle, you know, where it's like, you can have the anarchy and you can have the fun, but you'll lose that cynicism or you can have the cynicism, you have the fun, you lose the anarchy. And now I just think he's a pure sentimentalist. And I I, I don't know if that's like age or if that is, I don't know. I don't know what, 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 what happens to a filmmaker for them to kind of lose those elements that you.
1: My, my, my theory is that, um, Right up until the early 90s, it's a pretty, I mean, it's a slightly bumpy, some are better than the others, but there's a really interesting, like I say, cynical entertainer that made everything from I Want to Hold Your Hand all the way through to Death Becomes Her. But then Forrest Gump comes along and that scores, you know, the the, the big uh, financial and critical and awards kudos. And that kind, yeah. of, that kind of split, kind of like um, at the end of Deathly Hallows, it kind of splits him into two <laughs> distinct things. And it's like the the cynical side of him does. Because I think Forrest Gump is a much more cynical film than both detractors and fans think it is. That it's mm. not the sort of sentimental fluff fest that it that it's sort of touted as, but it's got a weird relationship to its own boom and nostalgia that, that doesn't quite isn't quite fully work. And I do think that it's having that kind of success that kind of fundamentally changes a filmmaker's DNA. Mm. Um I mean, mm. look at, not to get ahead of ourselves, Andy, but looking at Like Spielberg with Schindler's success, that changed his DNA to a point. And there's a really interesting early noughties uh, paranoid sci-fi thing that he's got. And even like beyond sci-fi, you've got things like Munich and and Bridge of Spies. Um, I think it really works for Spielberg, whereas Zemeckis, say for the occasional contact or... um, uh, I don't know what else is... Uh, what that has been he's pretty cast away, cast I guess. Away. You know? Yeah, save for those occasional sort of mid to late career high points, it is largely faltering in this weird little sentimental paddling pool. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> it's, it's,
3: it's funny though, because you look at the stuff that he's been attracted to, like you look at the story, the real story of Welcome to Marwinkle, and then you look at like the witches, like you look at the Roll yeah. story. You don't of want the to look at the see, witches, like, do you?
1: <laughs>
3: well, you can, you can understand if you take this like Zemeckis approach of anarchy and cynicism and sentimentality and kind of roll it up into a very um, a, 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 like perfect little ball, you can see how those stories could be so good with all of those mm. three aspects kind of weave in there, but you're just lacking. You just, and, and if Welcome to and it just becomes this sort of like sentimental thing where you feel very uncomfortable at the things you are asking, being asked to find yeah. cute because of the yeah. way that that film sort of quite quite harshly treats a man who's very mentally vulnerable
0: yeah
3: um and it it's like he's trying to do another Forrest Gump yeah like, I think yeah. you're right Josh I think that probably is the kind of the um the junction point
2: yeah and I, I think like even quite a significant part of that that we haven't really touched on is there is this big motion capture craze yeah that yeah. Goes on yeah from yeah. the early to late noughties <clears throat> with the likes of Polo Express and Beowulf, and Christmas A Christmas Carol. Carol. Yeah. And I think that that is where his career, weirdly, I feel, has a kind of relation with the sort of work that he started doing with Who Framed Roger Rabbit, because mm. he kind of goes from this quite quite crowd-pleasing director, and even as he moves through from Roger Rabbit into equally kind of diff- different technical challenges on Back to the Future sequels, and then the big challenges in Forrest Gump, to then move into this... Uh, fascination of motion capture there's also that technical virtuoso side Mm -hmm. to him yeah that i i feel like whilst back to the future in 85 was a big effects blockbuster i feel like that kind of interest starts here Mm -hmm. with who framed roger rabbit
3: definitely and it's it's particularly when you look at um you know someone like terry gilliam who was in line to direct and then decided that he was too lazy to take it on board you know with regret. It tells you how much of an undertaking this was, and mm-hmm. how much of a make-or-break opportunity it was. You know, like Disney put so much behind this. Spielberg put so much behind this. It's like. A lot of people's reputations at stake of this film being able to yeah. nail the very ambitious challenge that it was taking. The fact that they kind of pitched it, you know, Disney thought it thought fifty mil was too high, and so they tried to do it on mm-hmm. thirty. And then those costs just kept escalating and escalating mm-hmm. until I think it broke. It went beyond fifty. Um, yeah, just sort of tells you how much was riding on this opportunity on this movie, and it was really probably beyond Back to the Future. It was the the thing that made him as a kind of reliable blockbuster guy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He
1: sort of ironclad his, um, you know, his his status, I suppose. But there is, I think, if you look, have you seen uh, his, his first two, I Want to Hold Your Hand and Use Cars, Jack?
3: I've seen used Cars. I've not seen I Want to Hold Your Hand.
1: But you see, like they were both like decent uh, critic successors, but they bombed at the box office. So as far um... as studios were concerned, he was not a, a viable uh, prospect. But there is definitely like there's a plucky underdog fighting against the man's spirit in those two films that kind of carries through into *Romancing the Stone*, which is his first big success. It's kind of mm. like the cynical anti-Indiana Jones, while borrowing a lot of like visual and, and narrative stuff from that film. And there's a sense with Zemeckis that he always now he's success once he got successful, he was no longer the plucky underdog, and he needed to kind of manufacture those that, that sort of. Um, circumstance for him so you have to kind of tie one arm behind his back or tie both arms behind his back don't just have motion controlled uh, imaging that you then composite animation on have fluid dynamic camera movements with dynamic light sources within the frame it's there's always like he's always trying to manufacture the circumstances within his career i think to to sort of be on the back foot even though he's very much you know part of the establishment now
3: well, I wonder how much he learned about his current trade from the animators that worked mm. throughout who framed Roger Rabbit, because mm-hmm. there's just they broke so many technical and the whole idea of you know in animation you never move the camera, and but here we're talking about film noir and there are pa- camera pans everywhere and we're <laughs> exploring the world through so many moving cameras and so you see these animated characters kind of from angles we're not used to seeing the way that the camera sweeps around them. And so that takes like four times the brain. It just takes a malleable brain and such yeah. a creativity. And Zemeckis must have been working so closely with those animation directors yeah. to pull this off. I wonder if some of that spirit kind of rubbed off on him and that that, you know... Something which is probably now very much a part of big blockbuster filmmakers' brains, but was definitely part of of animation filmmakers' brains, which was just like rising and breaking challenges and just kind of discovering new, like actively creative problem solving, like solving problems which had never been risen before. Like how do we move the camera around these people? How do we move shadows? How do we move real-time live-action shadows around an animated figure? like issues like that and i i wonder yeah if that kind of creative problem solving like uh, kind of just r- rubbed off on him
0: mm-hmm.
2: mm. Mm. yeah and <clears throat> to tie kind of give a bit more flesh to this kind of production narrative i think it's interesting to hear like you saying that he is this kind of plucky young aspiring filmmaker and the fact that his history with who Frame roger rabbit goes back right to 1981 when yeah, yeah. disney first bought the rights to uh, the novel by Gary K. Wolfe, which was published in 81. Quickly, they bought the rights. As you said, Jack, there's that clear kind of uh, wide audience appeal to the project in and of itself. Zemeckis at this point does offer his services, but then after I want to hold your hand and use cars aren't particularly well-received. Like you say, Josh, they, they've they got no interest in handing it to this this young uh filmmaker, no matter how ambitious he may appear to be. Um and while they Disney were quick to buy the rights, there's this kind of strange simmer period, as I can best describe it, in the early eighties, where not a lot of movement actually occurs with the project. They try some animation tests. There's one where Paul Rubens voices Roger Rabbit that uh Daryl Van <coughs> sitters uh, an animated and directed. But uh, beyond that, there's not a great deal of like talent being attached at all. And uh, it's not until 1985 that Disney start to really feel the need to get this in active development again, largely because Michael Eisner joins Disney as uh, its kind of CEO at that time. And that's when they first reached out to Spielberg, Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall at Amblin to see if they would be interested in co-producing. Because, as you said, the initial $50 million budget that was estimated was far too big at a prospect at that time for one <laughs> studio to think about how to deal with, which is, is mad. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <So> how <laughs> to be quaint. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Amblin themselves were quick to agree. Uh, and they made a very good deal where they managed to wrangle quite a lot of the creative control over the project as well as a large percentage of the box office profits, whilst Disney kept those sweet, sweet merchandising rights. And I think it's hard to imagine Who Framed Roger Rabbit being the film that it is and featuring the kind of be it background characters or even scene characters that it has from all these uh, various companies and studios of animation if it wasn't for Amblin and the Spielberg clout coming on, because one one of the first things he does is set, set up Discussions and meetings with the likes of Warner Brothers and Fleischer Studios and uh, Turner Entertainment to see how many characters they could get them to lend for the the sake of this film that would want to populate with as many recognizable characters as it can to both build into that nostalgia and kind of tap into that potential of this crazy world where cartoons exist in real life
3: the quirks of the, the that yeah. kind of arrangement <laughs> yeah, so funny. yeah like yeah. daffy and donald yeah. ducks must be equal equally skilled yeah. piano players <laughs> yeah yeah um, but i mean that that, that that again a creative challenge it's like yeah. okay how do you yeah. make that an interesting scene oh we do the dueling banjos but we do it with pianos and you know <laughs> yeah ex- yeah yeah. The, yeah amazing scenes where like daffy is playing it with his tail feathers <laughs>
1: It's mad, but there's a rumour that um, for Hobbs and Shaw, there was a stipulation in in Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham's contracts that both had to have the
2: same number of punches.
1: I don't know if that's true or not.
2: That's all all those movies, man. That's a a genuine contractual (laughs) obligation across that entire franchise. (laughs) (laughs) Natural evolution. It all started here with Daffy Duck. Daffy and and Donald. Donald (laughs) There's a clear parallel there, isn't there? (laughs)
3: <laughs> it's, it's it's funny because this feels like a real foundation of like blockbuster filmmaking now and mm-hmm. you know we're talking a week after space jam uh, so yeah. next generation how long that would take to come called. up the final nightmare <laughs> <Yeah>. is, <has laughs> and that's a real kind of like IP splurge. Yeah. And yeah. O- o- obviously this feels to be you see uh, c- companies studios which own huge estates or own huge properties kind of thinking about like uh Scoob like how do we bring in the Hanna-Barbera yeah. collection yeah. into it? all how the do things we, we own. <laughs> and you see like kind of the the, the Marvel universe the, the decade long approach to how do we get all of these characters together it, it's kind of like equally working together. It really is kind of like this feels
2: like one of the first that really yeah. uh, pulled it, it does together. Feel an origin point.
3: And it's interesting to like compare it to a later emblem film, Ready Player One, which uh-huh. does a yeah. similar thing, pulling together all of these disparate things and being like, oh, I wonder what it would be like if we had. The Iron Giant and Akira, Mm-mm. like in the same movie, like, oh, yeah. and it, it's that same kind of like escapism. But I feel like in this, it plays to a childish part of your brain where those characters play together anyway. Like yeah. all cartoons, yeah. kind of. You when you're younger, you don't know the difference. Such between a perfect MGM. way to describe
2: it. The 20th
3: Century <laughs> Fox and Disney, like, yeah. is irrelevant. Yeah. It's just like. Toonland, like Toontown, is in your head.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, and I, 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 I almost think that the two are barely equatable. Like, what, what, what this is utilising that for is is so. It's in a different world to what sort of the cynical nonsense. Ready player ones doing spoilers for that episode. You know, two years from <laughs> Josh now. isn't a
3: bad. <laughs> as, as soon as you see Dumbo fly up to Maroon's window, <laughs> yeah. it's like like i've watched it when well, well, i watched over the weekend i was just like grinning ear to ear yeah. and then when you see the broomsticks like sweeping up yeah. outside you have that wonderful tracking shot where you're kind yeah. of seeing this mix of characters it really does transport you and it's even sort of like quirks like uh i mean the plan was originally altered but the fact that the the tune squad who I to this day i say like if disney plus ever approached me and be like what disney ancillary series would you want to make i would do the team squad like procedural show absolutely (laughs) but like that was originally going to be like a kind of seven dwarfs
1: a kind kind of a,
3: a, 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 a satire i guess where you have like smart ass and Psycho and all, all, all of these different horrible. You've weasels. got yeah, you've got stupid,
1: smart-ass, greasy, wheezy, psycho, slimy, and sleazy. But then slimy and sleazy were eventually written out because it's too many. Uh, I, I guess also the sp- too many
2: damn weasels. <laughs> slimy and greasy feel like they're
3: kind of in the same. Wheelhouse. Yeah, like but
1: oh, I, no heartbreak. I guess you could say the movie's slimy and sleazy enough as it is. But, uh, <laughs> <clears throat> Um, Sorry about that. I, I know, You know what? When I was making my notes, well, <laughs> when I was making my notes, I did uh, think to myself, that's a thing I'm going to say later on. And I just said, <laughs> I've like got a few of those
3: too. Oh my, oh my <laughs> <word>. <laughs> see see if you how can the... spot on the listeners as I clear my throat. And, <laughs>
1: it's almost and demand right. a clean channel. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's,
3: do you think do you think Bugs and uh, uh, Bugs and Mickey would be friends? Because they seem to be very amicable in that kind of parody. They do scene. seem very
2: amicable. I don't I mean, know. if enough. that was a stipulation.
0: Yeah, well, it, it was.
1: It, uh, <laughs> uh, the stipulation was Mick, Mickey and Bugs have to share the scene. They could only, for some reason, they could only be in the film if yeah, they shared a scene together. I just wonder
2: if it was that they had to be nice in the scene. Did they right, have to be nice right, in right. the scene?
1: <laughs> well, enough, go, going back to um, our first. Exposure with these films. I, this is not a, this, my kind of relationship with this film. is a bit muddy. I'd, it's not one that I recall seeing in its entirety until pretty recently. But the, the one lingering image I have is being at my grandparents' house in Birmingham and just sort of sitting in front of the TV, channel surfing, and happening upon this thing where there's a man, a real life man, falling out of a window and falling past Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny. And even as a kid, I must have been about ten thereabouts. Even at that age, I was weirdly aware of of studio Whoa. systems, <laughs> and uh, you know that there are these delineated um, characters as part of different studios. I thought, how on earth are these two together in one film? And it became this like hallowed object over the years that was uh, almost like a, a shadow of a film that I was always one step behind, and, and just somehow I could never quite catch up to uh, Roger Rabbit. Um,
0: (laughs) so yeah so so, yeah
1: mickey mouse and bugs bunny sharing a scene together is an image seared into my head uh from childhood
3: well you're not alone because bob hoskins kid like didn't speak Mm, to him for like days and then eventually (laughs) was like you worked with mickey mouse and Bugs bunny and you didn't tell me (laughs) (laughs) I i
2: can imagine that rights issue was uh those rights issues were enough of a headache to kick off kind of the, yeah. <laughs> diving into the production of this but I uh, think it's only really the start of the the pain really is getting all these <laughs> yeah getting yeah. all these rights uh, zemeckis is hired in 85 off the back of romancing stone and back to the future doing so well and clearly after making one of the biggest blockbusters of all time you you're going to have pretty pretty free reign to choose what you do next but he sticks with his mentor, as it were, was Spielberg and goes back to Roger Rabbit, who he first met in the <laughs> early 80s. Uh, Zemeckis and Spielberg kept Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman on board as writers. They were already attached at the time throughout the early 80s. Um, but um, for inspiration, the two writers, and I think this kind of the tail end of this point, Jack, kind of, I think, speaks to your point about how Amblin really keeps a grounding to keep these films from being just complete otherworldly fantasies. So while while these writers were kind of drawing upon Tex Avery cartoons, Looney Tunes, and the kind of golden age of American animation, they are also kind of taking elements from L.A.'s history to build this these subplots out to, I imagine also to, for Zemeckis, that kind of appeals to his satirical nature and his kind of more adult nature as well with the whole uh, red car, car subplot in the film where the um, Cloverleaf is the uh, corporation in the film that's kind of taking over all these kind of local grown businesses and transportation services in town. These are all based off uh, kind of like elements of suburb expansion and urban and political corruption that was really happening in LA at this time where it's uh, the, the Pacific Electric Railway that um, system that was that bought out the 40s cable car system and then eventually a freeway as judge doom kind of reveals to be his ne- nefarious plot of the whole thing is to build this massive freeway through la that <laughs> is actually the freeway in la is where the red car station and tra- tram lines once stood so i i could see how that Element of the story very much speaks to what you were saying, Jack, at the start about how there is this real world folding in a lot of these films. What do you want to car for? How ridiculous. Los Angeles <laughs> is the
3: best tra- uh, public transit system in the world. <laughs> yeah. but, like, very <laughs> not a knowing line. And if you do, like, if, if, if for anyone who has been to LA, you know that uh, it's, I it's I used to work for a company which like had its roots in in LA, in Culver City, and you know that kind of being someone who has always worked in London. Um, and it's, it, you know, your lunch hour comes up and you're like, oh, I'll go out and get a sandwich or I'll, I'll go out and get something to eat. Like in many places, particularly in Culver in Los Angeles, like you, you step outside and it's like there's a tire shop there and nothing else. And it is wow. this, like huge <laughs> expanses of road. And it really is just a. They're, 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 There is no real public, I mean, it's slightly changing now, but there is no real public transit system to say it is a place ruled by the car. Like, you really need, in order to make the most of that city, like, you really need a car. In a place where, like in London, where you're told, like, oh, go check out this thing and you can just sort of nip around there, like, you've got to sit in a mile of traffic in order to get there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
2: No, thank you. (laughs) And after. Script was in place. Cast, casting came came to the fore. Uh, I, I loved reading this list of names that were also mm, in contention yeah. for Eddie Valiant. Uh, Harrison Ford was Spielberg's first choice, but he was so <laughs> expensive. Chevy Chase wasn't interested. Uh, I, of course I he really wasn't. It with Chevy
0: Chase. <laughs> <laughs>
3: it's interesting to go through these. So Har- Harrison Ford, I don't think, would nail the knowingness that bob hoskins does and it's, yeah. it's like a very narrow knowingness it's not like it's never a wink to the camera that's what you would get with chevy chase no, right you no. would get the wink to the camera yeah. i know what i'm doing you, you, and with you get fletcher business no. <laughs> yeah you get fletcher business uh, <laughs> uh, it, 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 with harrison ford i don't know you're know, like if there were some of the funny lines he would nail but again it's that very narrow knowingness that i think bob brings um who else is on the list Andy?
2: Uh, there's Bill Murray who didn't realise That they had, were trying to <laughs> offer him the role And found out the facts whilst reading A magazine and whilst out in public And apparently did just scream into the air <laughs> <laughs>
1: do, do you know what his method reportedly was For receiving it's like, and, and, and perhaps it an is an answering machine right? Well apparently it's an got, answering machine Apparently he's got a PO box somewhere in America That he sporadically <laughs> checks And it's sort of potluck as to whether or not You sort of You get picked up
2: <laughs> that day in nineteen eighty six he wasn't around. <laughs> and Eddie Murphy also reportedly turned it down, something which he revealed on Inside the Actors Studio in the nineties, as and he himself saying that he completely misunderstood what the ambition of it was and it and holds it as one of the greater uh 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 oh god, I can't think of the word. <laughs> one of the the, Great The, the regrets ones that of could, have been. <laughs> the ones that was, could um,
1: have been... What year was Beverly Hills Cop? Was that 84? 84, that wasn't That was the year before. Yeah, so that was just yeah. A, yeah, a while before, actually.
3: It's funny, isn't it? Yeah. It's that's like the, the most of those are solid comedy actors. And what works with Bob Hoskins, Bobo Hoskins, as I will continue to call him throughout this podcast. Um, Happily. It's <laughs> like the movies he did before this we yeah. really like very rarely driven by comedy. It's stuff like yeah. Mon- Mona Lisa's before this, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, a couple of years a year before.
3: And it is just this brilliant, just that first line, the
1: t- yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 that comes right at the end of that one sort of fake, uh, continuous shot from the cartoon into <laughs> the real world. And it, oh, we'll get, we'll,
3: we'll get around to that, I'm sure. The baby, yeah, but just yeah, that, yeah, like. His it just floors me. There's one line that really floors me, which is when Betty Boop comes up to him mm. in the club and she goes like, I still got it. <laughs> and he yeah. just does this like very sad and hollow yeah, smile. Yeah. And he goes, Yeah, you still got it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's um, perfect. Then there's, there's that a bit later on when he's he's hiding out in the in the uh, the movie house with Roger watching the goofy short on, on the big screen. And he opens up for the first time about what happened with his brother and kind of what drove him down this path that he's currently on. And he's sort of like he's sort of fingering the bottle of booze that he's got in his pocket. And I watched that. I thought, oh my no, he he's giving it. This is a genuine performance. This is kind of like um yeah. It reminded me a bit of Michael Caine in Muppet's Christmas Carol, where it's I was someone that's about giving. To say that. It's like mm-hmm. uh, what you said about it, it's a sliver of knowingness, but it's never winking to the camera. It's a genuine, like, beating heart, human being performance that would be the same if it was humans that were surrounding him, not, you know, Muppets or, uh, in this case, cartoon characters. And that's, that's I think, that's the kind of like, the crux to making this whole thing gel together the way it does.
3: And, Andy, yeah. I'm sure you'll be, you'll be able to correct this, but I feel like the breakthrough of this movie is the idea of eye lines like being able mm-hmm. to connect these animated characters. And it was really one of the first times this was really nailed. And it's now like, you think of the way that movies, blockbuster movies specifically are made now, you have nothing to act against apart from a, uh, a, 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 often like a light with a face above it or a couple of ping pong balls on a stick or whatever. And that's what you're meant to be looking at. Like Bob Hoskins is really creating this mode of acting, like, before your very eyes in this movie. He
2: really is. He really is.
3: It's staggering. And it's, yeah, it, 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 it's just, again, another one, like that kind of, like, IP assemble idea of filmmaking. It's like acting against nothing, creating the co-stars through effects. And it's being the future. able to convince you. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it really is a, a, another, like, pivot point, really. another Another junction mm. point.
2: Uh, and even even more to kind of like the what Bob Hoskins brings to it and what he also had to kind of go through the preparation is one of the first things that he did when he got the role was go through this kind of mime training sessions to which they were blocking out all the movements to be done in camera. If you for the eagle eyes, if you keep your eyes on uh, the like live action actors hands during scenes where they're involved with a cartoon character their fingers are closed so that the animators don't have to Ah. animate in between those gaps. That's good, that's good. (laughs) But, and and all that's blocked out previously to to the point where it's either to nothing or he's acting alongside kind of crude rubber mannequins or Charles Beister himself, who is voicing (laughs) Roger now, would turn up on set in a rabbit costume and say the lines from off camera. But such a, like, and as you say, Jack, he's kind of carrying this kind of form of performance throughout it because he is the individual in the cast who is the only, I think, pretty sure I'm right in saying he's the only live action member of the cast who is by himself with animated characters for the most part. Most other characters will have other humans with them in, in scenes. Bob Hoskins has entire sequences where he is by himself with animated characters Such was the intensity of this experience that he would, he said he suffered hallucinations for two weeks after the film wrapped and he felt he couldn't take a job for a a year afterwards just because he had to really get it out of the system.
0: (laughs) 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 But I
3: mean, it just fully makes you like Bob Hoskins as I, I feel like anyone outside of the UK when you're thinking of the great screen performers. Bob probably doesn't come to mind, but really like you just see acting as a craft in this. And especially when you watch some of the behind the scenes footage as well. And you actually see him against like a blue screen and you see him. There was one moment which is when he's hanging from the flagpole and Tweety is like walking yeah, across his knuckles yeah. and like plucking his fingers. And you see the kind of twitch. You see the muscle in his fingers as if they are like kind of hanging on. And it's like, how do you, it's, even his fingers can act it's, okay, <laughs> even, even hearing you say that now my,
1: my initial knee-jerk reaction is well no because he was acting with the animations but then of course that's impossible <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so, it's so, it's so Twitty Twitty was really there no, his performance so at one with the fabric of the movie it's impossible to think yeah. that he's doing that in isolation and it's such a testament to him as an actor
3: also bear in mind He's in scenes where he's with Roger Rabbit, like where he has to act against nothing. Yeah. He's got Fleischer offset in a rabbit costume. (laughs) Yeah. Like shouting these lines across at him. And he's able to give
1: Yeah yeah. And it's just a guy in a rabbit costume. It's incredible. It is absolutely Keep it together, man.
2: Only that man could go on to play Mario. Uh, in terms of other casting, uh, Christopher Lloyd at this juncture feels like it, this would have been a bit of a no-brainer, mm-hmm. yeah. considering he had been with Robert Zemeckis on Back to the Future. But uh, a few people did also or were also considered. Mad. I loved hearing that. I loved hearing that Tim Curry auditioned but was deemed too terrifying. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was my favorite discovery. Yeah.
1: <laughs> In virtually any context Tim Curry is too terrifying for the role it, Home Alone 2, he's too terrifying For the role that yeah. he's playing
2: Mr. McAllister <laughs> that was
0: that was, that was,
3: that The word cheese pizza He yeah.
1: said with such yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's the matter? Stop. Store wouldn't take your stolen Credit card <laughs>
2: Tim Curry podcast next. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that could be when we finish ambling, we can do Tim Curry's oove
2: <laughs> Other potential judge dooms include Christopher Lee, who I, from what I could gather, was not very interested in the role, and John Cleese, who was deemed not scary enough. <laughs> so, what do you do when you're looking for the midpoint between Tim Curry and John Cleese? <laughs> <laughs> you cast Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> It's
3: uh, it's a truly terrifying performance, really. Isn't oh, it? absolutely! In, in a very really palatable is. way. Yeah, in a very way. But it is like it, it, it's uh, things that I appreciated this time round when I was watching it. The whole thing with him not blinking on screen. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, really noticed it, and it's the way the light catches his glasses as well. Is is just like very very scary, and also it's the moments when he flashes his teeth, like that strip of. The crystal white teeth that he just—it's—it's it's the scene when he's in the in the bar hunting for yeah. Roger and that like barfly does the joke about here he is, it's Harvey and then he's just like stares at him and then just this this sudden grin and you just see this strip of horrible fake white teeth uh, yeah just like chilling
1: yeah yeah <laughs> so- <laughs> and to bear in mind too that this this film this role. Was sandwiched in between two performances as the lovable, cuddly, eccentric Doc Brown for the same director. Yeah, it, and then, then not not uh, three three years after this, was it three years? Three years, three or four years after this, he was Fester in the Adams Family, which again is another fear. <laughs> yeah. And it, he's he's such a, versa- a versatile, versatile, full bodied actor. He's one of those guys who is kind of like the Jim Carrey thing. It's not just facial tics and, and dialogue delivery. It's a, a full-bodied performance that he puts in and it's, it's incredible yeah. to watch how his whole physicality and his whole physical being changes. <laughs> he's one of the greats, man. Let's, it's about time we canonise Christopher Lloyd as one of the greats, I think.
2: I think he's doing alright. <laughs> uh,
3: well worth noting, one of the final performances of Mel Blanc. Original voice actor of Bugs Bunny, of uh, uh, you know that stable of characters. The only the only character he didn't do was uh, Yosemite Sam because it was too uh, too taxing on his vocal. His yeah. elder too vocal boisterous!
1: <laughs> <laughs> My biscuits are burning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, swear, I think I kind of flagged it in the synopsis but, uh Kathleen Turner as the speaking voice of Jessica Rabbit uh, was uncredited, I guess, to preserve the integrity of Jessica Rabbit as a a, a being. <laughs>
3: I had no idea about that.
1: That's such yeah. a good, like,
3: again, talk about, like, po-faced very, very, um, uh, 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 you know, very straight performances. That That voice performance is really, like, kind of, it just dripping with yeah
1: with
3: theatricality.
1: It's perfect. Uh, yeah. It's a perfect it's awesome. performance.
2: Yeah, yeah. She's she's great. She's great. Channeling air in inner Lauren Bacall to great effect. <laughs> 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 oh, Here, here's where the things stuff gets real heavy in the production side of things now because the f- filming begins November second nineteen eight nineteen eighty six. Uh. After Zemeckis and Spielberg have hired Richard Williams as their uh, animation director, and as a result, they moved the production from LA where Disney wanted it to London to kind of um appease Richard Williams, who who, who admitted he was openly disdainful yeah. <laughs> of the Disney bureaucracy. <laughs> And refused to work in LA. So this is why um, a lot of the production, uh, a lot of the animation was done in uh, the, the Forum building in Camden. And a lot of the live action sets and what have you were built at Elstree Studios. So everything was largely kept based with a few additional bits of shooting towards the end done in LA on a blue blue screen at ILM for the two town sequence. Uh, and it was as this film moved through its very long seven and a half month um, shooting schedule that the budget just started to balloon from 30 million to 40 million to over 50 million to some reports even saying the film ends up at about 70 odd million and it was somewhere around the 40 million mark that uh, Eisner was starting to get a bit hot under the collar and was even threatening to pull the plug on a (laughs) <laughs> on Who Framed Roger Rabbit before it was even finished. In modern money but that's
3: it... around like 120 million right so yeah. even in today's standards for a family movie you're kind of climbing a yeah. game to play. Because yeah. Yeah.
2: even think like the if, big animated movies now like Frozen Frozen 2 or what have you they have close to 200 million dollar budgets, and this was the the most of amount of money a film had ever spent on an animated movie even though it's not a full-fledged animation this is the biggest budget one's ever had at this juncture and thankfully it was jeffrey jeffrey katzenberg who had just taken over as studio chairman alongside eisner who managed to keep his uh keep his nerves at bay and encouraging eisner that working with spielberg and zemeckis was going to be a good thing in the long run and if all that kind of mind acting and blocking out of the sequences wasn't enough to kind of contend with across this whole seven-month shoot, the film then moves into a uh, what is a fourteen-month period of post-production um, that kind of takes over from eighty-seven and into uh, eighty-eight, building up to its summer release. Then, uh, as as we have pointed out, Hugh Frame Roger Rabbit is of course not the f- first ever film to ever blend live action and animation but it is the first one to do it with camera motion, incorporating as many physical elements as it can, seamlessly blend the animated characters with a live action world. So when you think of something like uh, Jerry the Mouse dancing with Gene Kelly and Anchors Away, most of that is very static shots with very slow pans if there is any movement at all. That is largely static. And like you say this is where Zemeckis is kind of going out of his way to make this film look move as dynamically as possible to really kind of see how far they can push the the means in which they are putting this these animated characters into this real world. And you've got to bear in mind as and well, like this the... is
1: pr- before computer animation and before digital yeah. comp- uh, compositing. Yes, it's all done <laughs> well. I mean, yeah, you'll talk about the process now, I'm sure, but it's like cells and optical. Mm compositing it's insane the undertaking this was on a purely physical
2: level absolutely like you like you say it's all traditional hand-drawn cells and optical compositing Uh, and the process was an arduous one because first the animators and artists were given black and white printouts of the live action film itself which they called photo stats around uh, on the set and they would then place their animation on top of them and then uh, then drew the animated characters in to match the action of the live action footage. So this is literally a frame-by-frame frame process of matching each action to ha- what the um, crew had done on set. So every kind of like moving furniture or dangling gun or spouting water is suddenly filled in by an animated character to make that seem like a seamless action. And uh, due to that kind of dynamic camera movements the main challenge was making sure that when you're animating these animated characters where you're usually kind of doing it static and frame by frame when you're having to follow the movement you've got to be very careful that the frame by frame capturing that you're doing isn't just letting characters slip kind of across the movement <laughs> so after rough animation was done it went up for another process where it was run through the kind of normal traditional animation uh processes where cells were shot on a rostron camera, which is a camera that is specifically designed uh, to adapt to frame-by-frame shooting of animation, and that, that was shot to, on no background, so it could then be later composited into the live-action footage. But before that, then <laughs> the animation footage had to be sent to ILM for a majority of that compositing, where the technicians at ILM would then be responsible for adding adding those lighting layers so your shadows and highlights and your tone mats, uh all separately as well so they're doing all these levels separately to match the lighting and the three-dimensional space of each given scene Uh, (laughs) and when those lighting effects were uh optically were then optically optically composited onto the cartoon characters who were then in turn composited into the live action footage so there's a lot of Layers upon layers upon layers to get from having this frame by frame live action footage, building the movement into the a- animation itself, then building the texture onto the animation, and then finally compositing that finished, three uh, D lit, um, complete character onto the final film itself. So that is a long, <laughs> long, long <laughs> Not process. Straightforward.
3: And if you see, if, like one scene in particular is that scene when um, when Eddie is soaring through the handcuffs, and you have mm-hmm. the he bangs his head on the light, and it swings—a a, a wholly unnecessary stage movement, but a, a small moment of funny yeah. scene. And then that light swings around, and you see on Roger the way that the kind of shadow yeah, moves yeah. around him. As soon as you enter that scene, knowing that that's four different layers of of animated like four different yeah. animated layers over each every single frame and you see the way that the shadow and light moves over him it really makes you feel like n- no one would have noticed like you could have just <laughs> done the scene and it, the light is just normal
0: <laughs> yeah. like
3: a light bulb turns on yeah. and it's fine but there's just something you know when we enter into a film noir we expect this kind of dynamism with light we expect that kind of free three swinging light bulbs yeah. yeah. add so much to that genre it's purely genre lighting uh, and it just it, again it just tells you the kind of love that went into this movie yeah. and no one was sitting in that audience being like oh look at how the light goes over Roger Rabbit because by that yeah. point of the film I think it's around 40 minutes into the movie yeah. you're kind of like Roger's one of the cast members yeah. Like that light <laughs> yeah. might as well be like flinging over Bob Hoskins <laughs> like it moves in exactly the same way like you are not you are not impressed really
0: you should be not <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah
2: it's not until you sat doing something for something along these lines where you finally go like oh yeah shit yeah <laughs> they didn't need to That's do really that really difficult we didn't been impressed without the swinging light
1: but with the swinging light robert you don't need to do that <laughs>
3: So two scenes in this movie where I remember like being really stupid, like the scenes which are really stuck in my head. The first one is when you first enter the the Acme factory and you start seeing all of those different like kind of cartoon implements, like the cops are kind of like rooting around in the boxes and seeing mallet with the big (laughs) boxes. I remember seeing that and being like, this rules, this rules, this (laughs) rules. This is amazing. Yes, 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 yes. I want a hole. Yes, Yes. Yes, please. Yes, that. The second scene, <laughs> and I only, I only remember this when I saw it. Uh, in, when I watched it just this weekend. Was when Eddie folds down his bed, and it was the first time I'd yeah. ever seen a folding bed. And I remember being like, "That rules! That is so cool!" Yes, 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 yes.
0: That had the same effect me as
3: seeing like a man using a cartoon mallet. I
2: was like, "Yes, yes, yes! I want one!" Yes. Why don't we all sleep in one
0: of these? (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of using
1: props and making things harder for yourself, it's one thing to have live-action people using animated props. That's fine. We can deal with that. But it's when the animated Mm. characters use real-life props, you think, Jesus Christ! Imagine what must have gone... I mean, I know it's wire work and marionettes Mm. and that kind of thing, but still, the kind of... the, 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 The motion matching that you must have had to you know to how it boggles the mind to think about how that kind of thing was achieved and it's yeah
3: so, two things come to mind so there's there's some great clips on youtube of um the uh d- you know the team cabaret humans only mm-hmm. and they, they it's like all of the trays the penguins moving the trays around before mm. the penguins are put, put in the scene it's all of these robotic rods which are just like on tracks taking yeah. them all around and then it's you've got the octopus at the bar, and that's all kind of like you know invisible wire, and all of these glasses are bouncing around. But one scene that really like messed with my head yeah. was when the Toon Squad come into Eddie's office, and one of them has like a Tommy gun, and the other one has a pistol. I I, I think Smartass has a pistol, and he's like knocking it around, and he's like tapping Eddie on the head with it and stuff. And it's just like that is not you could there's that that's definitely not a human holding it because it's the yeah, size of yeah. a weasel. It's definitely not a robotic rod. It's definitely, yeah. like, it must be some kind of... why. why. It just boggled the mind, and uh, I just kept on having to pull myself out and being like, no, this way madness lies. If I keep trying to think, like, yeah, how, yeah. They, how they put a gun in a weasel. <laughs> this is where mad
0: madness <laughs> lies.
1: <laughs> and then you've got a goddamn sequined dress on just its, uh, yeah, you know, body as she's doing that, that, that cabaret dance which apparently was accomplished by filtering light through a plastic bag that had been scratched with steel wool beforehand. Not
3: sexy,
0: is
1: it? Just just like compounding (laughs) challenge upon challenge upon upon challenge, you know, it's mad.
2: Yeah. I mean, those 326 animators are going to be pretty much at the mercy of whatever was shot on set. Yeah, yeah. They do an... An incredible job. Apparently, over 82,000 frames of animation were drawn for the movie. And Rich Williams, the animation director, he estimates that over a million drawings in total were produced for the movie from pre production to right to the end, which is <laughs> 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 what said, where are they all well, now. Through what
3: we said, you know, when you'd say frame, it's like. That is lineup. That is the coloring. Those yeah. are the, all of the individual layers of light and shadow that are going on top of that character. It's all of those moments where you're getting that character to stick to the scene and actually yeah. feel like they're present and not sliding around on the floor. Yeah. Like, that is a crazy amount of work for a split second. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Wow. And and like and and not, <laughs> not to insult the intelligence of our listeners, but in case anyone doesn't know that there's there's twenty four frames in one second of film time, so you have to do that process twenty four times to make up literally one second of film time, which is it, it, to, to comprehend the amount of work that goes into this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, it 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 pays off but when when it's done, like you say, Jack, with this much love and this much care. You know, it 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 makes something that
2: lasts the stanza test of time, which I imagine Totally totally And I think it's it's weird though that Disney kinda ends up almost hiding yeah. themselves from it upon <laughs> when <laughs> when it's building up to yeah, yeah. <laughs> release. <laughs> um as it was approaching its June twenty second release, Eisner and uh Roy Disney who was vice chairman of the Walt Disney Company at the at that time, um, felt the t- film was far too risque upon seeing the finished product. For the Disney pr- brand, Eisner and Zemeckis had arguments, but Zemeckis, um, and I, I believe Amblin had secured Zemeckis' uh, final cut privilege, so he was not. It was in no way made to feel like he had to change anything, so he did. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <And laughs> crazy, by the way, when you think of all of the characters he was working with, these characters, yeah. decades old characters, and like the the kind of loaned yeah. property he was working with, that he got final say.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. It's mind boggling, <laughs> and as a result, Disney uh, felt that it was inappropriate to release under the Walt Studios, Walt Disney Studios banner so instead they decided to put it under their now defunct Touchstone Pictures banner which was a distribution label uh created by Disney in 1984 that was designed specifically to uh be that house for their more mm. adult orientated yeah. titles mm-hmm. Uh, which was still producing films up to about 2018 yeah. before it went to fun.
1: The, the, the one that I always associate with Touchstone is Nightmare Before Christmas. I had that on video and it had the, mm. the the Touchstone logo and the Touchstone trailers before it was... You felt it was a bit more... It's like the young adult section in a bookshop as opposed to the kids' book <laughs> section, you know. Yeah. That,
3: wait, I mean, there's, there's a good... There's a, there's a, <laughs> thing that I want to reference here, and I just need to find the quote for it. Oh no, this <laughs>
1: uh, I do this all. I don't all find the time. Time. Let's uh, let's vamp for a moment. Ah, Jack, come on, see, find your <laughs> See, control F, huh? Uh, we'll hang let's you, let's hang us
0: One more, out.
3: one more little search. <sighs>
1: Well, um, Andy, while Jack's searching for that, what's your connection to this film? Do you have a childhood connected. connection to this it's not, film?
0: It's not
2: much. It's not much of one. No, it's like again, largely recorded off the TV one Christmas. Yeah, like 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 many a good Amblin <laughs> film of, of episodes past. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where I cut out the Radio Times blurb and stuck it on the back of the videotape. That is right. I love yeah. that. Would you take the tap out of the tape as well?
1: No, no, we never went that you, far. You, you, you never know a better one might come along that you might want to. Uh, okay, all right, I think Jack's got it. That was, uh, yeah.
3: Yeah, I'm going to have to try and do it off the top of my head. Um, But again, like Touchstone, that's another logo, which is just kind of burnt into my head. Like that kind mm, of like yeah. rough, Thunderbolt <laughs> thing, like cool logo that comes down. It's cool just logo. like it's the Arrested development in one of the later seasons of Arrested Development where they're like, yeah. uh, "Oh no, we make the thunder hitting a tree kind of movies." You know, <laughs> yeah. it's just like describing <laughs> <laughs> like the logo that come before them yeah. is exactly kind of like <laughs> it's hallowed, yeah. the hallowed halls of, of, of these these recognizable
1: yeah. production
3: companies, production studios.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I miss it. I miss seeing it in new releases. Come back, Touchstone. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't imagine Zemeckis or Spielberg were really cared too much once the film was out in the world because it, of course, went on to become a worldwide smash, making $300 million worldwide. Highly praised by critics for its uh, story, comedy, its innovation in both performance and visual effects. And it is one of these films that is now widely regarded as being one of the sparks that kind of allowed the modern animation scene to really come start building momentum and particularly into that Disney Renaissance period in the early nineties. So much so that and your the yeah aforementioned, aforementioned Nightmare Before Christmas there, John. Yeah. Uh <laughs> that and Who Framed Roger Rabbit are now Disney now retroactively, yeah, um, cool Disney movies. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so... yeah, yeah. Cool movies. shit. We were like, it's,
3: it's crazy. Like you kind of look at the knock-on effect that it had. Like Jeffrey Katzenberg going on and doing everything at, at, at DreamWorks and kind mm. of the, yeah, like, yeah, all, yeah, everything yeah. straight but also Spielberg and like the spark that it gave him in the world of animation, it led him to creating what like, is quite possibly the best TV series ever, The Animaniacs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Home home of uh, uh, Yakko Warner, who I have based my entire personality of since like, the age of <laughs> eight years old when I first saw him. Kind of like, you know, a handsome, smart
0: ass. <laughs>
2: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. as, as, as soon as I saw Yako
0: Warner, like, This yeah. all makes sense now. Yeah, trousers. Exactly,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he does have good taste in trousers. Well, I think good taste
0: in trousers.
3: Trousers are all Yako Warner wears.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's one wardrobe costume, <laughs> one costume wardrobe. But I've. <laughs> To kind of build on a lot of the kind of points we've been touching on here, to kind of let's just let's just go to town on this bad boy now. Let's go Toontown. Um, let's go Toontown on this bad boy. Yeah, let's go Toontown on this bad boy. <laughs> um, I think particularly coming into light with this and the the way you described it at the start, Jack is it, it is one of these childhood films that does have this complete switch for you whenever you watch it at a later point because you are you you do just. You love the idea that there are all these characters that you recognise from your favourite Disney movies or favourite cartoons. But when you're a, a bit older and you, st- you start you to realise why Who Framed Roger Rabbit is something that has never quite gone away and has always remained a favourite across generations. And I think that is, for me, a, a large part of that is because it doesn't put its focus on these IP characters or these iconic characters. It builds a genre picture around original characters and an original story and allows them to kind of own the movie and everything else is just kind of background and when you do compare it to something like to be fair to the film I haven't seen it but space jam a new legacy is all about Warner Brothers putting its specific i IP mm. yes populating the background to but to the point where it's not it's not even kind of a genre story anymore it's literally just about like how do we get these elements of ip all in one space as was uh, and even going a bit further back to that when you look at space jam in the 90s that is a amalgamation of these two of iconic global figure in michael jordan being paired with a with a separate studio ip Although we should say that um, Warner Brothers did ask if they could use Disney characters as part of the gentleman agreement made on who framed Roger Rabbit, and Disney said no humiliating. (laughs) Uh.
3: But uh, uh, on the topic of New Legacy, like I uh, I think there is such an onus now, and you see this with like DC properties and like we said, like Hanna Barbera as well, for I think now studios are trying to enlighten the more casual viewer, the broader viewer mm. into the presence of what studios do and the IP yeah. that they own. And I think the the premise of Warner Bros. being like, Yeah, we got the Looney Tunes. Also, we got Game of Thrones. Yeah, we got a clockwork orange (laughs) and just all all of this like it seems mad on the outset but what they're doing is just like this is our shop window yeah yeah which is where with who framed roger rabbit what they're doing is actually showing you a medium it's so much more pure it's like being like by the way that thing that you the reason why you love this stuff is because it is this medium Is because yeah. these characters are all hand drawn and that's the reason yeah. why we're hand drawing them in this world that's the reason why we're sticking to this thing it is the the it is a craft that's the reason why you connect so much yeah. why you connect with bugs as much as you do with mickey is because it mm-hmm. is it is mm-hmm. yeah it's all hand drawn
1: I think also uh, you sort of you look at the your, your new legacies your you know space jam one old legacies even things like a, a film I quite like uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet uh, that film has a grotesque moment prolonged sequence where they go to all about disney.com and it kind of it's disney showing off oh here's all the things we own here's, here's pixar here's star wars here's marvel here are the disney princesses you know, there's a lot of cynicism behind all that that kind of is driving uh, viewers towards mm. brand recognition. But then I, the, the one outlier which should not be an outlier, in my mind anyway, the one thing contemporary animated film that kind of somehow does all of that but transcends it is the Lego Emoji movie. movie. Shut the fuck up. The- <laughs> the- <laughs>
3: it's got Twitter. It's got uh, SoundCloud. No, it's got Dropbox. But...
1: It's got
0: Dropbox. <laughs> it's got Patrick <laughs>
3: Stewart voicing. The hero in that film is Twitter. Patrick Stewart Stewart voicing a kid's favorite
1: character. I forget you've seen that, and it's disc- you've seen it multiple times, haven't you? Yeah, three times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, uh... you stood on the point that I was making. The point that I was making was I think the closest kind of spiritual film uh, today to this movie is the Lego Movie, which should be a cynical exercise in corporate marketing, but it kind of gets to the essence of what it is almost to create you know and it kind of twins the form to the ideas that are beneath it which is something that roger rabbit uses its various intellectual properties for as well and it's a good exercise i think in seeing how to do this thing and how to not yeah. do this thing
3: i think it's yeah i think that's a great point and it's like what the lego movie does which say like ready ready play one which by the way I don't hate that film. I, I don't. No, think, I don't. I, don't I, like could, that film. I quite like it. I think, <laughs> I think what it tries to do, it kind of it does. I wouldn't say it nails, but it does at the best of of, of its abilities. But. What Lego movie does is it doesn't ha- it doesn't cherish the characters mm. that So when yeah. you see Superman and Dumbledore and stuff, like <laughs> they give them stupid voices. <laughs> <so> they <exactly. laughs> give them stupid voices and they make them lean into the worst traits of those characters. And it's like having yeah. Wonder Woman's invisible plane blow up and, and, and all of this stuff. <laughs> it kind of like really highlights like, yeah, we got a bunch of goofy characters in this shot. Um, whereas something like Ready Player One is constantly trying to convince you of how cool all of these people yeah. are, yeah, and like how cool the Iron Giant is, and it's like the, the the coolest point the Iron Giant gets to is when he is compassionate and when yeah. he learns, like that's when that character. The Iron cool. Giant's this, not
1: yeah. a gun. Warner Brothers, stop making him be. I feel fa- like, like he's not a gun. He's not a gun.
2: Stop, stop making, making him gun. a gun. <laughs> it's twenty twenty one. Who well, I also believe is in Space Jam too. Of course, too, so he is. We'll see what. Yeah. Well, that happened. Yeah, There's a line that I think is said in, uh, in Space Jam.
1: Anyway, anyway. Um, but
3: while while we're on this point, I think it's it, it, it's time for me to roll out a kind of a pet hate of mine. And Josh, I've talked. I've, we've
1: talked about this a lot. Mm. But, uh, you, you, I for think the you've, listeners, you've teased this listeners. take. I'm excited to hear it. Yeah.
3: For the listeners of the Rambling Podcast, me me and Josh Glen do a um. Pretty much weekly bad movie.
1: Yeah, yeah. It started at the start of lockdown one, didn't it? And it kind of blossomed into a glorious, reliable source of endorphins every week.
3: Me and Josh will, um, uh, I mean, uh, unleash quite like uh, horrible, horrible films on each other (laughs) on a a weekly (laughs) basis and watch them over Zoom together. Um, and this is this is two two films that we watched in this, which I think are kind of you can trace a line from Who Framed Roger Rabbit to these films, and it's especially when we talk about everything that comes into the historical context of of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, um, Happy Time Murders, and oh yes, and Bright as well. I will roll <laughs> into this in that they are movies which they. They are very so. The important thing when you're bringing in the historical context, who framed Roger Rabbit, I think is very important to highlight the fact that these communities that were steamrolled for the freeways, for the for the freeways that 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 are mentioned in the film and that happened in real life, they were largely non-white communities, mm-hmm. and it was like huge. It was the car industry and the tire industry that completely steamrolled with these places, um, and. <sighs> Bright and the Happy Time Murders are two movies which think that they're making very, very clever racial allegories, but actually, what they're doing is just like clumsy and frankly, like gross. Mm. Like, as soon as you are doing a binary racial allegory with puppets and with monsters, it's like you are completely on the wrong track. Yeah. And also, when you bring into account that these movies, Technical skill aside, I think they're a great, uh, particularly in the Happy Time Murders, the puppetry in that movie is like great and it is kind of is great, great classical puppetry. But it is Brian
2: Henson. Yeah, yeah. It? Well, yeah. It was a Henson.
3: Yeah. It was a Henson. Not the Henson. It was a Henson.
2: Son of Henson. Um, <laughs> but it was
3: like, you know, these, these movies are largely white creators who think that they're being clever. Problem is, Bright, they put orcs in gang colours and in. Mm happy time murders they do jokes about skin bleaching and about plastic surgery and it's just you take something like who frame roger rabbit and it basically its main source of it, it, its main source of story is about it's the main story of who frame roger rabbit is about a man learning to laugh again is about a man rediscovering the ludicrousness of the the world and finding the joy in that and underneath that it is a story of systematic corruption and i think the creators fully knew what they had on their hands, and fully knew the danger of the story that we're taking on and fully knew the story that they could tell in their in their limited capacity and i think these movies that have kind of like spun off from it and think that they're smart and think that they're clever are just like some of the ugliest movies yeah <laughs> both both <laughs> visually and also like morally to to come out of this and it is just a, the binary in going like puppets and going orcs in, in the same way that you could breathe that but I, I i think it just comes down to the idea that it's it, it's I, I think it's complicated i think it's complicated and it's um just something that i think that who frame roger rabbit managed to do in a very sophisticated and um I th- I think it knew exactly what it was doing. Whereas these other films are made by people who, the Max Landis of the world, <laughs>
1: who
3: um, mm-hmm. have kind of come into all of their projects with quite a, with a certain arrogance. Yeah, and there yeah. isn't an inch of arrogance in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I th- and I think that's what makes it such a joy to watch. Is that you fully go into it. Knowing everything, knowing like Zemeckis as an author as mm. well, you go you go into Frame and you see it as a team effort and you see it as a team collaboration and you see it as a, 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 a completely yeah a, 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 a great entity. Whereas these other films, yeah, I'm sure there will be more. It's just quite gross. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, funnily enough, um, think of the, the sort of driving creative forces behind those films you mentioned. Um, you take Happy Time Murders; it's done by. Um, Brian Henson, who's a son of Jim Henson, who is Mr. Muppet, you know, Mr. Sesame Street. Yeah. You've got uh, Max Landis, who wrote Brian, he didn't direct it, but he wrote it, and by all means he saw that as his own Star Wars, as his famous oh, tweet, hubristic yeah. tweet showed him. They're both sons of really a famous Hollywood dynasties pretty much, So, you know, like uh, 70s, 80s dynasties, not sort of classic Hollywood, but still like um, movie mm-hmm. brat dynasties. They, they were born into this so they kind of like you say there's, there's, there's almost an entitled arrogance to their worldview whereas Zemeckis he's kind of a working class Chicago guy and he has that plucky well what a fight about it kind of attitude towards his projects <laughs> and that may, 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 maybe it is that approach to that to the craft like Zemeckis he's always trying to one-up himself and prove himself whereas uh, you know I don't want to, um, I don't know these people, I don't want to make too broad a point,
2: but it is funny kidding. that... Please don't tie Brian Henson in with the same brush as Max Landis. No, no, <laughs> yeah, no. I, yeah. can't... M- no, no, I, I mean, I mean there is Christmas was... Carol. <laughs> no, of
1: course. Max Landis is a risible piece of shit, uh, Brian Henson made two gorgeous Muppet films and then one really misjudged adult foray. But there, there, there is still kind of... <laughs> there is a, a sort of like an, an entitled hubris to the swings that those two... that the Bright and Time murders take. I think that Roger Rabbit manages to transcend because it, it, there's such a pluckiness of spirit to it, maybe. There's such a, a commitment to the craft and, and it's... It gets so so into the weeds of its own making, and I don't think that Bright and Habitat Murders ever quite get to that point. I don't know. I do I, I was, I was and trying I think, to I was trying to sort of draw a contrast there, but um...
3: at no point does at no point does it try to tell you it's being a clever film. I think That's, no, very, no, that's no. a very different. One. There's never the exactly what we're saying about Bob Hoskins' performance. There's never a nod. There's never a win. No, it
1: no, is just yeah.
3: Fully, this is your world. Playing it straight. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think part of that as well comes from just how much more successful Who Framed Roger Rabbit is as a genre film compared to those <laughs> two other films, of which, Absolutely, I've, of yeah. which I've only seen Bright, because Bright's a bit too much of a hodgepodge of fantasy and crime saga, and it doesn't really work as either. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit kind of opens up the door into its own well through this very... Steamy sax and yeah. title card coming up to <laughs> Alice Soper's score that fades to black and then we suddenly get a boy yeah. into the baby Herman, <laughs> baby Herman. And it's, it's just kind of like this the kind of like trampolining effect that you get from it yeah. that like carries over into the whole thing as of, of these yeah. two strange bedfellows just kind of kind of coming together and getting cozy and kind of like. <laughs> Making it work.
3: Well, anyway, <laughs> let's, let's talk about Alan Silvestri because. Sorry, I was doing podcast mm.
2: host.
0: <laughs> I to, yeah, let's like, uh, like. Hey, man! man. A- a- hey, uh, Let's drive dude. the car
2: into Alan Silvestri Lane. This is, a,
1: this, is a <laughs> this is a ramble. This is a ramble. You know, it's a
2: loosey goosey ramble chat. <laughs> well, everyone loose... takes their. La- everyone could take a lane.
3: Silvestri <laughs> <laughs> uh, freeway. <laughs> um, but talking about what we were talking about earlier about like movies that make us cry, the moment of Who Framed Roger Rabbit that makes me cry is when Eddie is looking through his his kind of his photographs that he's taken on Dolores' camera, and uh, mm. then he gets to beach photographs, and there's that beautiful like trumpet that we're Such used to theme. that kind of like mm. Eddie's theme, and then he gets to the picture of of Teddy Valley, his brother. And then it suddenly goes into those strings, and he's looking at those pictures, and then just like as natural as anything, the camera pans across, and you see that dusty desk that he used to sit, and you realise that it's Valiant and Valiant. You see that dusty desk with all of his things there, and you move across so naturally to all of the photographs of them together, to them and the police force together, to them in the circus when they were younger, and it is just this like just in few seconds it's probably no more than 15 seconds you understand yeah. how this loss has has made the eddie valiant that we've met now has yeah. made the cynical yeah. man has made yeah. the man who who, who feels about tunes the way that he does because because of what has happened because of this thing that he's had because of the loss that he's suffered and just what the soundtrack does to take mm. you through that movement is Absolutely yeah. incredible, and it means that every time you revisit that as well, and just the moment that you mentioned earlier when they were there in the cinema watching the Goofy short, I think that, yeah. that returns as well that
0: soundtrack. It's
2: like a piano version yeah. of it, like yeah, like very bare keys version. It's
3: absolutely incredible, and it's another one of those like n- nobody expected this of this film. Mm-hmm. Nobody yeah. expected mm-hmm. this. This like, like, oh god, <laughs> no accurate film noir. Jazz, blues, kind of mash up <laughs> with all of like the two <laughs> down music, as well. yeah. and how well that is done! All of that choppy, bouncy music, and like the smile, downy smile, like when yeah, how those two genres of music exist in the same? How are we here? <laughs> yeah, it's,
1: it's unreal. Uh, they 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 do make great beds I mean. The animated uh, shtick and the noir make great bedfellows, and then Sylvester and Zemeckis make great bedfellows, because Zemeckis has something that he does, kind of like Spielberg's got his wannas that are just economical visual storytelling. Zemeckis is incredibly good at condensing scenes and scenes and scenes of exposition into one yeah. sort of visual pan. Back to the Future opens with an info dump, you know, that, that tracking shot of all the clocks and the TV and, and the... Mm. the um, you know, Einstein's bowl that's overflowing and it conveys so much foundational information and the senior you mentioned Jack in the office when, when he's looking at the photos and it pans to the dusty desk and you see the clippings and all that stuff it's such beautifully restrained, purely visual um, exposition that's sort of countered, that's sort of under, underlined rather by this gorgeous score and it does so much heavy lifting in such a a really ingratiating way um, It's really an art form unto itself, I think, that kind of info dump, because you don't realise you're being info dumped on, you know, because it's made into a beautiful, almost like a short film unto itself, you know.
3: I'd love to know what inspired that take, like for Mm -hmm. it to be in that number. Again, Like I completely forgot that moment,
1: Back to the Future.
3: But yeah. for that to be like I mm-hmm. I I I bet there's I bet there is uh, an inception point. I bet there is yeah. a film that at some point in Demekus's early life kind of made an impression.
1: Um yeah. But then even like look at the used cars, a much smaller much smaller scale, smaller budget film, that opens with a similar Long tracking shot that takes in a lot of visual information and lays what's the groundwork.
3: The what's the opening shot of these it's, cars?
1: It starts high, looking at the sort of the fender of a car and it goes down into the lot and it kind of creeps through the oh, lot, you know. Of course, it, and he's yeah. like
3: working and he's yeah the
1: milometer yeah, yeah. in the car. Yeah, yeah, and it tells you so much about the environment, the sort of the dynamic of the guys and and, the, and Kurt Russell's character. You get all that within about, you know. Uh, a minute of of screen time. It's uh, Z- used to have a wonderful in camera efficiency with that kind of thing.
3: Mm. Yeah, now uh, it's, um, <laughs> it's all computers. All, all
0: computers
2: now. <laughs> <laughs> I had a I had a moving away from kind of more. Filmmaking side of it. I had a bigger question about the kind of actual fabric of this universe that I wanted to throw <laughs> <guys. laughs> right. um, in yeah, I've only ever had this question pop up into my head when I was watching it yesterday. And it was, um, how are tunes created? Because a lot of the time it's suggested that they are still drawn... So my my question is: Do they implicitly then, once they are drawn and committed to a sketch, they are now then an alive being? And then in that case, who the hell drew Judge Doom? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so I've
3: got two points in this, Andy. First of all, fascinating thing to bring up. Obviously, I'm not bad. I was drawn this way. Yeah, 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 eyes. yeah. It's exactly. Things. Maybe I was drawn this way, Lady Gaga. Um, but also. <laughs> the uh the, the idea that baby herman literally says uh like i've got the sexual i've got the mm. libido of a 50 year old but the winky of a three-year-old <laughs> like that, that that raises
0: questions
3: but um, yeah also <laughs> wait oh, oh yeah there, there's a moment at the end so after doom after that harrowing sequence, when Doom is melting in the
0: dirt. Oh, I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <of that> melting! <laughs> and then all of the
3: other cartoon characters come in dangerously close to the big puddle of dirt yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that is turning. in. And then Mickey says, like, oh, I wonder who he was. Oh, And I wonder if that was, like, a sequel. Uh, like was a sequel that or something thing. that was in the script <laughs> where we kind of learn who that character was. I think it's very interesting that the paint is yellow. Uh, not saying that it was like home <laughs> and it was invented <laughs> <Yeah>. there, <though. laughs> but like <laughs> there, there are elements there that I feel like there was something that was maybe excluded or because there's a rubber, it's a rubber mask,
2: yeah. left behind, like, yeah, a rubber
3: mask and the two glass eyeballs
1: and the gloves and everything.
2: Yeah. yeah. Who was? There's it, a mystery to doom yeah. that's left
0: there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> on, on a similar kind of metaphysical note, I, I, first of all, I, I cannot begin to comprehend the the existential quandary that you've
2: posed there, Andrew. But the second sort of. Did Toontown always exist? Was I don't there's know. Just, there's always this section of LA but, that was just animated. Sort of thing... <laughs> or did someone make them Toontown?
1: Well, the <laughs> <thing laughs> when, when the tunes are in Toontown, of course, to, they operate as tunes, and, and cartoon logic applies to their sort of. Corporeal form, but then when they come to you know regular real life LA, two in logic still applies to them, you know, that they still get birds on their heads when they're hit, they can still fall from great heights, and but then in real. But in 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 real life world, <laughs> Bob Hoskins, if he was shot in the head, he would die. But when he goes into Toontown, there's a part in the in the elevator when it goes up really fast, and he becomes flat. As a so so, so, <laughs> so I mean, so Toon logic applies to real people that go into Toontown, but but not
2: when they're in the real world. <laughs> Just imagine it's like a. A gateway in a Annihilation <laughs> where you just see
3: your DNA yeah, is yeah. being changed. Yeah. By him. <laughs> you know that, that gun that the revolver yeah, that Eddie yeah. has from. Hey, who was, it a old time, it? Huh? was it Elmer Thud, it says in the tag or something <laughs>
1: like
3: that? Yeah. <laughs> so, like, what happens if he shoots a man with that?
1: Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, these are all questions the film happily raises. I think there'd be... Well, <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> just imagine it's just a surgeon pulling from a corpse, like a bullet, which goes like, well, damn, boy, I've been an awful long time ago.
2: Who did it?
0: Anybody?
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> and even like the the very construct of the dip, I find it a, a fascinating element of the world where people assume that there's nothing that can yeah, kill a team. Yeah, yeah. And then there's suddenly this concoction, which, funnily enough, all the ingredients that are listed as the concoction are, are the same ingredients you would use to wipe paint off an animation ah, cell, which I think is a I nice I didn't pick attach. up on that detail. <laughs> <It's>... yeah, <thanks.
3: laughs> and also, while, uh, while we're talking about hey, it, I think it is incredible how much of that shoe dissolving that we watch. Yeah. Oh. Like how much <laughs> the it holds that, on it like, so it, long. We
0: get about halfway yeah. through
3: that shoe and it's like bulging There's eyes. so
1: much pain in the shoe's eyes, so much anguish. You really Do you know feel. Did you voice that shoe? No.
3: Nancy Cartwright. Oh. In a very yeah, early Simpson. Whoa! Role. I did not know that. Herself.
2: Have a cow. No, don't have a cow.
1: Don't, I wouldn't. <laughs> I
2: wouldn't. But I'm. And I get as another point of logic to the film that I was like, oh, I'm probably thinking too much about this. But <laughs> if if there's the dip, how come the weasels can die laughing? Uh well <laughs> Presumably anybody can. I don't know. I I, I... I was just really thrown by it. It was like, how can they get animated angels, and <laughs> and the shoe didn't. <laughs> Actually, and
3: also, it's also like, well, we're getting too dark here. But like the compliance that the weasels have in like eradicating Toontown. Town. Yeah, and that, that they yeah. don't think they're like. Yeah, that's the line. thing. It's yeah, weird.
1: I feel like that the the dip eradicates, you, scrubs you from the face of existence. Whereas the dying laughing with the with the with the weasels. That almost leaves the door open to further afterlife cartoon antics. There's something so existentially terrifying about the dip. The dip implies that it completely rubs your essence from the world. Whereas at least dying a toon death Implies a, a sort of tune afterlife. So you're gonna you know? be playing a harp Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, Good point. Somewhere. I like that. I don't know. <laughs> there's something in the. Yeah. There's something in <laughs> yeah. the pain in the shoe's eyes, and the. Uh, it's, it, it, it's ludicrous how it's much you're made erased yeah. from existence. There's, there's, like <laughs>
3: honestly, the amount of attention in that. Like, because I watched that scene several times. The shoe tenses, <gasps> and it like God. curls away from oh, oh, dip oh, as it no. goes in it's horrendous
1: Um. it's one of the worst it is one of the worst death scenes ever committed and it's mad it's a shoe that you met two minutes prior to its death (laughs) (laughs) and it's a shoe it's a shoe
2: it's a cute shoe (laughs) he's just nestling up to his ankle not even
3: not even Elizabeth's (laughs) shoe
2: yeah not that's back to the future
3: part yeah. two territory <laughs> um uh, it, uh, while, while i'm going through the dregs of my notes one thing that i love and reminds me of a story that i really really like is the fact that sting wrote a finale song for for the movie
1: yeah so, i didn't um, know that
3: <laughs> yeah sting 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 wrote a finale song for the movie which obviously replaced a smile darn you smile it reminded me of and I never know if this is a true story or not, because I like it for a fair <laughs> party. But it reminds me of the story about Shrek and how they did a huge opening number for Shrek, which was a big song and dance number which introduced you to this kind of alternative fairy tale world oh. and all of the different characters there. It's like it is Sleeping Beauty and the Seven Dwarfs, yeah. here's is Robin Hood, here's all of this. And then the producers it's Jeffrey Katzenberg again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the producers turn, turn <laughs> and went Oh, it's good. Um, We have just got the rights to Smash Mouth all stuff, so we might just use that, actually, and have the opening sequence as Shrek has just had a shit. Like That might be be the route that we go around.
1: Listeners, as, as as reliably as I'll shoehorn in Wild Wild West to an episode, Jack Buckley at BuckleyJack on Twitter will bring in Shrek into any given conversation. <laughs> also, hey, a little, a little, a little tip this is such a tangent of a tangent, but the um, All Star by Smash Mouth was originally uh, sort of like pegged to a film that I think super underrated Mystery Men uh, 1999's yep. Mystery Men the music video the, the music video is for is Men. Mystery Men that in. film was such a, an embarrassing flop for everyone that they kind of I think they reshot it or they they allocated a different music video so it, again they, they sort of put Mystery Men let's in go the with a Yelp yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's funny how Mystery <laughs> Men was that, for that, that song's kind of big launch pad and then that the song Long Outlived the Film, which is a super goddamn underrated movie, Mystery Man. It's great. <laughs> well, it's, it's, very, it's not great. It's good. <laughs> don't, don't, calm down. <laughs> this movie's great. Roger Rabbit is a great
2: movie. <laughs> uh, what do you guys make it like? think of Roger himself because I I do have memories when I particularly when I was watching this as a kid. My dad was never that super keen on it. <laughs> he liked Bob Hoskins a lot and he liked Bob Hoskins in like pretty much anything. Yeah. Uh, and he also liked him in this I think largely because of just how pissed off he seemed by everything that was coming <laughs> on around him for the for the, <laughs> for the majority of it. But my dad really didn't like Roger Rabbit. No. So <laughs> And I, I kind of understand.
3: <laughs> I'm not 100% on Roger. It's, it's it's, it's, interesting looking at the process of like, you know, th- th- that they took Mickey Mouse's gloves and that they took like the, the, the bunny form of bugs and that they took like the stupid trousers <laughs> at beauty. Like, and kind of rolled it into one character. Like that's yeah. very interesting. That, that kind of like appealing triangle shape that he takes as well. Yeah. Um, and, and also, like, I don't think I'm making this up. But, like, the American flag colours was definitely, like, a consideration <laughs> that was taken into mm. the creation of Roger as well. Um, I think they are. There are moments where I like him, and there are moments where I deeply dislike him. I like him and Jessica Rabbit. I love
2: as a... Yeah, I love that relationship. I love that
3: as a couple. And it's... Uh, like, Josh jo- jo- jo and I were texting about the original... So it's interesting to touch on who sense of Roger Rabbit is the, the origin point of yeah. the story. Huge, huge differences. And it's basically the only thing being drawn from that IP is the idea of a PI, a gumshoe, investigating a murder in a world where cartoons live alongside humans. That's really the... That's really the the where the comparison ends because the, the the novel is all about um is all about like comic strip characters and it's it deals with the the murder being investigated is the murder of Roger Rabbit
0: hmm.
3: and so like mm-hmm. he's gone until like later on in the story where you learn that the cartoons are able to like duplicate themselves so they right. can move with it. There's lots of odd like world building mechanics which feel unnecessary when you simplify the story for like the big yeah yeah blockbuster version of this story there's a cool element where like speech bubbles um when cartoon characters speak, like speech bubbles appear and then drop to the ground and they become like litter <laughs> in the world. <laughs> and it's like uh, Roger cool. Rabbit's last words uh like a major clue because the speech oh, bubble is in that's the <laughs> good idea. That's, that's, that's pretty that.
1: cool. I like that. Yeah. Exactly.
3: Yeah, there's lots of lots of clever elements like that. But ultimately I feel and one of the key things is jessica rabbit as a character is kind of what the first layer of jessica rabbit is in the movie where you're like yeah she's yeah a seductress she's using roger blah, blah, blah. the movie doesn't take it beyond that at all
0: yeah the, the, the book books, doesn't yeah, take books, it beyond yeah.
3: that at all even and i do much much prefer this very wholesome relationship mm. to kind of like this un Explainable love, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he makes oh, me laugh.
2: Sort of <laughs> <character>. <laughs> it's much more enjoyable.
1: Which Kathleen Turner again completely sells purely through a voice performance. It's amazing. <laughs> you totally buy it. It's so sweet and uh, and pure.
2: <laughs> yeah, because it, and it's even like just a nice inversion of the kind of yeah, yeah, as well. Where it's not, she's not. Being suspicious, it just looks kind of suspicious because she was all just she's drawn that way. Is trying to find a way. She's not to bad. She's drawn that way her... exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> she's trying to help her husband and fellow toon kind. She's great. <laughs> um, but while we're on the topic
1: of of Jessica Rabbit, I, I do kind of want to touch upon one of the more salacious um, trivia aspects that's associated with this film, which is that <laughs> when the later disc was released in March nineteen ninety four there was sort of um uh,
2: laser disc
1: <laughs> yeah because laser disc in a way that vhs didn't laser disc allowed you to go frame by frame when watching a film and some pre-internet basement dwelling type found out via frame by frame viewing uh or rather not found out suspected that via frame by frame viewing there was some jessica rabbit based nudity Uh, This was then picked upon by media outlets such as CNN, and it caused a big big old media storm back in the in the early mid nineties. <laughs> and there was a run on supplies <laughs> that was fueled by these reports. And many, many, many <laughs> outlets um reported selling out of the Laserdisc of Roger Rabbit within oh, I never minutes. knew it went out. Yeah.
2: Like <laughs> I
1: had
3: no I had no idea. But can and, you I mean yeah. this is this is this is like part of the narrative that people love from this era of animation, right? I mean it's it it is it, yeah. born from Quite bad, like abusive labour, essentially. Where yeah, like, you know, yeah. Who yeah. friend Roger Rabbit? Like animators were working twenty-hour days. Yeah, inhumane. No wonder they had to find a way to like not amuse themselves, but like to to really screw over like the the powers that be. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And I think this is yeah. really interesting. And there's like. There's like the train that goes past where all of the characters are like killing each other through the windows as well. That's like an aspect of have done. But like, yeah, that was a. It's the bit when they're thrown out of Benny, right? And yeah, yeah. When Benny skids through the dip, and uh, and Eddie and Jessica are both yeah, kind of like skid along the, the ground, and there was. A,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I
3: watched it okay. on the uh, laser disc that I uh, spent uh, <laughs> a lot of money. On, <laughs> to, uh, have the privilege. Uh, but it's like the classic. It's like the classic. There's a bit in The Lion King, right, where the stars, right, word yeah. sex, just oh. spell yeah. sex. <laughs> I mean, there's lo- I think there's something Animated. in Aladdin as well. Animators very sophisticated sense of humor.
2: Yeah, oh. yeah. They can work these things in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But even then, it doesn't feel that far and away from the actual tone and spirit of the film mm-hmm. itself. Because, like, again, the film has this like quite like grungy, sleazy yeah. element to it, where because it is a story about like corruption among from both a kind of corporation level and or and a tale of murder. And it, it and yeah, as you have said previously in the Back to the Future episode, Zemeckis himself is this <laughs> is just like a kind of hornier version of Spielberg is, in which yeah. he does. He does push the envelope of the, yeah. of the of the humor and the innuendo a lot more. I mean, there's so much in this so that you're like, "What?" Yeah, <laughs> you can draw a real
3: comparison between Sugarland Express and used Cars, and particularly yeah, like the like 100%. the use of convoys and stuff is only just one of them has a far greater use of like just that that 1970s like. Oh, I didn't expect to see a naked person. Yeah, in this yeah, part of yeah. the film. <laughs> it yeah. has that added element of it, which Spielberg doesn't have.
1: No, it's almost like yeah. <laughs> Spielberg's almost prudish, you know. As we said in that *Color Purple* episode, almost by his own admission. Whereas Zemeckis, he, he he doesn't have that kind of. He doesn't blush so easily. He's much randier a filmmaker. Even
3: in
0: *Welcome*, <laughs> even in his old. Oh, age. dude! And welcome well, to Marwen. There is <laughs> there's there's that says. thing,
1: yeah. Um, he, he he remarried. Uh, I want to say towards the late nineties, and I'm, I'm I'm blanking on the actress's name. But his, his his new wife was uh, uh, I think she's trained in burlesque dancing. So in a lot of films, even Polar Express onwards, she's in Marwin as well. She's one of the one of the um, one of the I don't know brides, whatever you'd call them, in, in Welcome to Marwin. But there is she does bring um, he he often puts a spotlight on her more burlesque tendencies. And so that's ensured that his horniness has survived into his silver fox age as a slightly older boomer.
0: Yeah, that's here as well, isn't it? <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's because like that Jessica Rabbit intro, for as well animated as, as it is, it, it's like sleazy as. Well. And it's <laughs> yeah. also it's always
3: like <laughs> noting that Jessica Rabbit's breasts like bounce upwards. In a yeah. very gravity-defying yeah. way, yeah. <laughs> it's and also a very just like male fantasy. fantasy.
1: Yeah, and 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 she herself, when you're in the Tudor Review Club, the first thing you see of her is first her leg and then one of her boobs. She's introduced via her assets, you know, and and that kind of again, like... yeah. Uh, as much as she does transcend the femme fatale
2: uh, trope, she she is still it's what it's all heavily, heavily it, sexualized. It, it, Ludicrous exaggerate, exaggeration That kind of goes yeah. beyond that po- Almost goes beyond that point where you you feel like It's just being leery and to the point that Where it's just so extreme to the point where they are anim- re- Having to really Think about the way they're animating Certain parts of her body move is where it's like Okay this has clearly gone to a place where it's Closer pastiche or just Like yeah. just so dialed up to 11 and
3: listen <laughs> I think it to- I think it tells you a lot about the state Of animation units um, and and cartoon yeah. units as well. The fact that the kind of the through line between the two mediums is that you have this trope of the men are goofballs and the women are these like sort of beautiful idealistic drawings of of, yeah. of women. And it's slightly like obviously it's the joke of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but it's the fact you can trace through to Pixar films made now that you have the coupling is always like kind of goofy dad and pretty hot month. Yeah, like, yeah, it, yeah,
0: it, yeah. I, uh, this,
1: this completely plays into that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Your yeah, Homer Simpson, Marge Simpson. Yeah. I mean, oh, I hate to invoke family guy, but, you know, I mean, all that kind of business. Even your, 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 your live action sitcoms, your Raymonds and your Kings of Queens and all that, you know, all that rubbish. Can you
3: think of any, like, animated female protagonists who are goofy and... I like treated in the way that Roger Rabbit is, but are protagonists in the way that Roger Rabbit ah. is arguably a
1: protagonist. I, I uh, sorry, did you say films or TV series?
3: Either, either. Uh, I think the, I think the we one... are now at a stage where we can compare the to
1: the one shining example. I think is Tuker and Bertie. You watch Tuker and Bertie on Netflix. Ah, yeah,
3: the, yeah. It, it it, I mean,
1: it looks Pretty to all fun. intents and purposes like a BoJack Horseman spin-off, but there there, there is something so specifically. Um, Female-focused about its worldview, and it, it's kind of like an animated broad city in many respects. But I, I you know, I dare say better than that implies. It's, it's really good, yeah. And they, 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 are really goofy and 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 like sort of frequently grotesque and and frequently very silly. You know, frequently wounded. It, it's it's a it's a really great, um, I think, example of that
3: it's really the exception that proves the rule mm, though isn't yeah it, and Bertie, mm. is the fact that it, it was kind of the the one of the sole reasons it was how and p- probably quite sadly one of the reasons why it was axed by netflix kind of mm. exposes who that
2: audience to animation is mm.
3: uh, yeah
2: i think it, like even to kind of offer a, my own example it's something that's a bit more skewed to the similar audiences that roger rabbit would have been to i have thought about it when I was watching the film yesterday, but it made me think of the dynamic. I don't know if, if you guys have seen it yet, but the dynamic in uh, a rare and the last dragon between the character of rare and the last dragon Sisu voiced by Aquafina. Cause you've got this kind of like person who used to be really I- idealistic and hopeful and who's been kind of Im- Im- embittered by the world around them and then comes across this uh, animal uh, like anthropomorphized dragon who is really Happy and fun and go-getting and tries to inspire her to recapture that some of that in herself through by simply by just like enjoying the the moment and going on an adventure and seeing a bit more light in the situation and like it's only when you kind of brought up that question that I've really kind of gone like oh that's exactly the same dynamic Mm. that's going into play (laughs) but with these two female characters rather than uh, these kind of both the noir trope and the kind of flamboyant nature of Roger himself. Mm, Yeah. His footprint's everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: And, 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 you know, nowhere more pronounced, I guess, than the proposed sequel that that almost was several times and and never has been. (laughs) Should you guys want to talk about the sequel for a little bit? Yeah, uh... tell me. I,
3: I know nothing about this sequel. I'm happy to receive it as a pitch
1: well it was um so it was <laughs> it was first discussed the year after this uh with with jj abrams who at the time must have been it must have been sort of what mid, mid early mid-20s I, I didn't quite realize yeah. that spielberg yeah and in the early 90s so he would have
2: been because he was just script doctor yeah yeah
1: um abrams was going to write it and, and zemeckis was going to produce uh as for spielberg the outline was eventually abandoned uh then Nat Molden was hired to write a pre- a prequel that was titled Roger Rabbit the Tomb Platoon which was going to be set uh, yeah. in 1941 to 1943. Can I read you wholesale the the description for this from Wikipedia? So it is
3: that is just a, just the ground us That's a prequel, right?
1: So uh, I think I, I think Abram's pitch was a sequel, Neil Molden's pitch was a prequel. Yes, yeah, so set set cuz this one's uh, set in 47. The Neil Maldon script was going to be 41 to 43. So uh, apparently it began with Roger Rabbit's early years living on a farm in the Midwestern United States with human Richie Davenport. Roger travels west to seek his mother. In the process meeting Jessica uh, Krupnik, his future wife, a struggling Hollywood actress. While Roger (laughs) and Richie are enlisting in the army, Jessica is kidnapped and forced to make pro-Nazi German broadcasts. Roger and Richie must save her by going into Nazi occupied Europe, accompanied by several other toons in their army platoon. After they triumph, <laughs> Roger and Richie are given a Hollywood Boulevard parade, and Roger is finally reunited with his mother and father, the latter of whom is Bugs Bunny. No. Well,
3: so everything we <laughs> said about our relationship with Roger as a character. And the yeah. No. As a character. And Pretty annoying. Imagine huh. if he was the protagonist
0: of your film. Yeah, like the reason the why Who Framed
3: Roger Rabbit works is because it's, he's, he's yeah, the subject yeah. of the film, but he's not the protagonist. You've got Bob Hoskins, <laughs> he's, your, he's your anchor of this world. Imagine just a whole film I know. Is following Roger.
1: Um, apparently, uh, this must uh. have had legs for a few years because Spielberg left it when he. You know, realized that he could no longer satirize Nazis after directing Schindler's List, so it, it must have been around for yeah. a good five years or so, four or five years. Um, Eisner kept commissioning a rewrite. Uh, kept, uh, he, sorry, he commissioned a rewrite in nineteen ninety-seven with Sherry Stoner and Diana Oliver, which kind of kept Roger's search for her, for a mother, and it replaced the World War II subplot with Roger's inadvertent rise to stardom on Broadway and in Hollywood. Um, actually, Alan Menken. Uh, who Andy <laughs> knows well <laughs> from the time you almost interviewed him and we you know, I, we're so right. I know that I've never felt worse there was a time Jack when Andy told us because Andy and I as well as going to university together and hosting a podcast together now we used to work together at a company I won't disclose on air I may have in the past but I don't think I have and uh, andy was doing a lot of and still does do a lot of freelance writing work he told us one day he was in the pipeline to interview mr alan menken and i don't know why i don't know why we all took it upon ourselves to to to, to mock you relentlessly for that i really do not know why i've never felt worse no, I, I don't
2: understand it no this day. no <laughs> um, and in the end it never materialized did it no. No, and I. I <laughs> why well, do it now? I'm going to be teased. No,
1: I, 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 I Absolutely. I mean, I, I've apologized to you profusely over the years. I do not know why, and I'm so sorry. That would have been rad. <laughs> that, that would have been absolutely rad. Uh, anyway, Alan Mencken was actually hired to write five songs for the film, and he offered his services as, exec- as an executive producer. There were songs written. Uh, I suppose, thankfully for some, Spielberg became busy establishing DreamWorks. Uh, you know, while Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy stayed on as producers, there was some test footage shot in 1998, which was a mix of CGI, traditional cel animation, and live action. Wonder well, how that That looks... did not please Disney. You can catch
3: s- that. That's available, isn't it? I think yeah,
1: it probably it. will yeah, be. So. There was there was a second test later on that had the tunes converted fully to CGI, much like the. Toon Squad in Space Jam, the next legacy. But then that was dropped as the film's projected budget would escalate past $100 million. This was still the early noughties, so that's a pretty ludicrous prospect. Um, plans survived throughout the whole noughties. In 2010, in an interview, there was talk of a sequel being in development. Uh, Hoskins did express interest in that, but you know, as we all know unfortunately, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2012 and he died in 2014. Um... In 2014, Wolf, the original writer of the novel, he proposed an animated buddy comedy with Mickey Mouse and Roger Rabbit called The Stooge, which is a prequel about Roger meeting Jessica.
2: (laughs) All these ideas are awful. (laughs) As as recently
1: as November 2016, while Zemeckis was in in England promoting Allied, uh, another deeply, deeply strange film. He said that the... I quite like it. I quite like it. It's a, a deeply strange little movie. Uh, he said that uh, the sequel moves the story of Roger and Jessica into the next few years of period film, moving on from film noir to the world of the 1950s. And, okay, Andy, this will absolutely turn your stomach. He said that it will feature a digital Bob Hoskins, but as a ghost Ooh, which how
0: how many, no. how many how <laughs> many
1: how many bells of bad taste can you ring at once you know, not only,
2: I don't mind the idea of moving it to the fifties, but no
0: Bob yeah, this is a fascinating yeah.
3: thing, I think with people who create. Brilliant blockbusters. Yeah. Is a complete misunderstanding of what people are attracted to within. Oh,
1: man. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And it's not even saying that, like, the thing that people connect to is Eddie Valiant. I think Eddie Valiant's a great character and that's a fantastic performance. But the key appeal of that movie is the idea of existing in a world where cartoons live next door, where cartoons work in the same place. That that is the key appeal. It's and yeah. it, the fact that yeah. it is like a history as well. That 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 kind of adds a certain realness to it as well. That you can look back and yeah, feel like it exists as part of your own world. It exists as part of your own canon. And the movies that you watch have been produced in the same way that like Gone with the Wind has been produced. Is being yeah. produced in a studio and Baby Herman is there and Roger Rabbit is there and they're being directed in the way the characters are in the way that you direct actors that's the that's the kind of that's the that's the central appeal of this movie is that shared yeah. world and then as soon as yeah. you put a cartoon in the lead. That uh, you lose that like that appeal, you lose that that attraction, <laughs> and it's like I don't want to know how Roger got <laughs>
0: famous. Like I
3: know, in the same way that I don't want to know how George Clooney got famous. Like I just I'm just like yeah, he's an actor, right? It yeah. happens, yeah. I get that there. <laughs> I'm, I'm much more interested in knowing this world around them. I'm much more interested in knowing about them, and it's like Eddie Valiant as again as brilliant a character as brilliant a performance that is there's so much more you can do with that world I think there is legs in a Who Frame Roger Rabbit like an expansion of that world but as touched on before it's never going to happen because the only no. way to do it is yeah. to do that same medium, is to do that same labour intensive production yeah. channel and that's just not that's just not going to happen now. That's not how movies get made now. That's not how yeah. big budget movies get made now. It's Sort of saying about the seven month and that's just a live action section of yeah. like this movie? Yeah, it's and
1: then 14 months, months like, for the post.
3: If, if you were to work on that same budget now and say, yeah, it's going to take us seven months, it's going to be like, well, you're not going to work in this town again. Yeah. Like, that is not an efficient way of working. Yeah. yeah. And then on top of all that-,
1: that, you have the, the, the extremely... Um, Cl- uh, closely held corporate interests of the corporate owners of Walt Disney yeah. the Walt Disney company who they they just, there's there's no space for the risks it's, it's it's mad to think that Roger Rabbit was even made in 88 let alone to imagine it being made now the corporate risks are, are to even the, the, we're talking about corporate risks in relation <laughs> to art is disgraceful but you cannot imagine you know the Walt Disney company uh, risking the Disney brand with something as risque as a Roger Rabbit's sequel, and nah. even though Zemeckis has changed uh, in his sensibilities, he he still does have a a, a sort of spiky, slightly unhinged, um, you know, uh, perspective on what makes a blockbuster, and it just I don't think it really squares with where studio filmmaking at that level is right now.
3: Well, this is, this is this is an interesting point to touch on this because it's one of the emblem movies that cross over with Disney and Disney being now mm. like whatever scary percentage it is of films, blockbuster films, being, yeah, uh, yeah, fall under the Disney umbrella. Like, Disney then and Disney now and what you expect from them, what you expect from that Disney brand, and bear in mind that now Disney encapsulates uh, Star Wars, encapsulates Marvel, encapsulates yeah. National Geographic, encapsulates 20th Century Fox, all of these ideas fall underneath the Disney thing. Do you think that this movie, that Who Framed Roger Rabbit, could be made by Disney now? And if so, like under which, <laughs> which ancillary would it be made?
2: Mm, I, I just so ever, I wonder how much Amblin still technically has a lot of rights over those characters because if disney has the merchandising rights i'm assuming that probably means they have a lot of the actual character rights. Mm-hmm. so it's largely in disney's ballpark uh, and they would be the ones calling the shots of it i mean he pops up in the theme park still so <laughs> i mean there's clearly still it's still clearly a vested interest on their part if there is Still, the simmering development that kind of gets talked about with yeah. Roger Rabbit. For me, it would have to come down to whether they would acknowledge the fact that they probably aren't the ones to really be the ones guiding it and do what they did in 85-86 when they first put push this back into production and get someone like yeah. Amblin to come in and kind of lead, actually be the ones leading it creatively. And it's it's just whether they let it be just let it be them they couldn't and whether that interference would surely couldn't. couldn't. Yeah. here's
3: a good question here's a good question young gun robert Zumekis obviously two blockbuster successes before doing this movie if if you were doing a roger rabbit now if you're doing a movie of that ambition that skill that kind of technical uh uh pioneering who would you get to helm it
1: I yeah. thought you were gonna ask that and I was trying to think of someone good to say before you finished asking the question, but um <laughs> I can say the
3: same I can ask the question a lot slower if you like. <laughs> <laughs> Hello,
2: Mr. Thompson. Cause you just know it probably just get <laughs> I've just in my head I've just gone out of Disney would probably let John Favreau yeah, do it, didn't they? No,
3: it's going back to the very beginning of this podcast, going back to this this Triple threat of cynicism, anarchy, and uh, sentimentality as well, yeah. and being able to make
1: these things coexist.
3: Who can do that now? Who can do that now? This
1: the one kind of. I mean, it, it's no way equatable. The one guy that I feel can operate in the Disney system but also maintain his own very distinct aesthetic. Taika Waititi? Is, it? no, <laughs> is, uh, is, is David Lowry. I've, I've been doing a bit oh. of a David Lowry, um, yeah. re- you know, uh, gap filling in anticipation. I'm not sure if he's silly enough. No, well, <laughs> that, that, that's what I'm saying. Uh, but You know, back when I thought the Green King was going to be fucking coming out at some point this year, <laughs> uh, I was filling in some David Lowry gaps. I watched, um, what did I say? The Green Lantern? Green King, I mean, yeah, so, yeah, that's, yes. oh, that's you've, a. Po- you've said
3: many many that's, names, that's, none that's, of which are the actual film.
1: <laughs> yes, so, <laughs> the green. So anyway, the thing about Pete's Dragon, um, but no, I think watching that, I mean, it's not. He's 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 a very earnest, sentimental filmmaker. He's 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 not silly, anarchic, or any of those things. But I do think that he is the one filmmaker that's been like wholeheartedly embraced by the Disney stable that has been able to maintain his own you know independent vision because like peace dragon is very much a mm. david larry film um within the disney house but it's just it it's it's almost safe that there's like an implicit nostalgia to what he does i i, I don't think that they would let because even like jack you mentioned mm. Taika Waititi. even when mm. he was subsumed into the marvel universe he had like An hour of his own movie in the middle of Thor Ragnarok, and then either side of that was flanked by housekeeping business. And who knows what Love and Thunder's going to be, but I just, I don't, I can't imagine him being given the same because he really isn't, he's not the craftsman that Semeckis was. And I don't know that anyone
2: working today in that way. I've, 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 I have had one come into my head. I've got one as Um, well, Andy, you go (laughs) first. I think, um, Ryan Johnson should Mm. just introduce Benoit Blanc (laughs) and Roger Rabbit (laughs) into the same movie together (laughs) Daniel Craig (laughs) swapping barbs (laughs) deductions with Roger Rabbit I think that is the only way I will accept (laughs) Roger Rabbit sequel as if it is also a Knives Out (laughs) sequel (laughs) that's amazing my
3: Vaguely similar. Uh, Lord and Miller. I, I, I think, you know, oh, they yeah, kind of straddled yeah. both worlds, bring them together. You're right. If you do that 21, 22 Jump Street attitude and you, but also the heart of the Lego movie and all of the other brilliant animated features that they produce since, like, like uh, Spider-Verse yeah. and the... Uh, the Mitchells versus machines. machines. Exactly. Yeah. Stuff that is able to, everything we said there's a sentimentality, anarchy and uh, all, all of this stuff all kind of folds into one. I think you can see it in their work and I think they would be yeah. able to do something very interesting with this
1: I think
2: that's probably the best shout Lord and Miller actually. I think that's definitely the best shout <laughs> 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 or a straight up version of the novel where Roger gets murdered and Benoit Blanc has, to <laughs> <that>. has <to> <laughs> 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 compels me though
1: um i i think i've pretty much run my uh talking points dry gang is there anything else that anybody else wants to to bring up about mr rabbit or i would
3: i the only thing i would say is you know if you've not Watched it since childhood. Watch it again, and it's not the movie yeah. you think it is. It's not the yeah, movie, yeah, movie yeah. you remember it being. It re- it really is not. <laughs> I, I think it is so. The, the fact that there are two modes of viewing, and the fact that two different brains, like a junior brain, and a senior brain, can watch it in different ways and draw different things, yeah. I think is one of the beauties of this movie, and probably one of the things which. When it was created was not an intention, but is a kind of a, 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 you know a byproduct of its production. Mm-hmm. I think is an absolutely incredible, and again, just the fact that is an artifact of the kind of film that just will never be made again. And yeah,
1: yeah. I, I
3: think it's just like a fascinating thing to watch.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's a that's a pretty good segue into uh, into. Talking about some tweets that we've had. We always do a call for tweets at the end of our episodes, and we've had, you know, a decent uptake. This is a popular film, and isn't it? People like this People movie. Like <laughs> it. it is. We had a tweet from James Rowling at James Rowling. Uh, I'd say this is the absolute pinnacle of animation slash live action combo films. Uh, some of it is mm. just incredible. Also, Judge Doom is terrifying, which you know I think uh, nobody yeah. would disagree yeah. with. Um, totally agree. my good friend Danny Hasty at Danny has T on Twitter if I remember correctly wasn't there a deal that they could use Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny Ooh. but they both had to have the same amount of dialogue in the same scene so as not to show favouritism on one side exactly Dan we discussed a uh, great film by the way the handcuff gag is legendary the handcuff gag
2: is legendary oh, it's such a good
3: like, I introduced this earlier I don't think Mickey and Bugs would be friends. Bugs is, Bugs is an asshole. Bugs is a stinker. He's
2: It'd be a he stinker, like, isn't he? By, it, by his own admission. It might... It's like kind of uh, two running uh, opposing running mates in a presidential like presidential
0: <laughs> election. <laughs> Just like, who's <laughs> running for who? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Mickey. Mickey, Mickey is, like a, is like a Ted Cruz Republican. M- Mickey, right? Mickey's definitely yeah, yeah, Mickey's yeah. a
3: Republican. <laughs> yeah. but, then, but then, like Bug Bunny is like uh, uh, a, a a wiener uh, uh Democrat. Right? Yeah. <laughs>
0: with yeah. Mickey,
1: Mickey, yeah. Mickey's George Bush. He's Bill Clinton. It's Clinton and Bush. It's Clinton and Bush. Andy got, got a couple of tweets.
2: Do Uh we've had one from the Paul and Griff show. Uh Griff, of course, was on our episode of the money pit. Uh, nice to hear from you again, chaps. Uh they just tweeted in to say way ahead of its time and scary as hell in the end. Mm-hmm. Which again it very much backs up our points of yep. how much it kind of is a signpost for where movies move on have moved on to now, and Christopher Lloyd's laugh will haunt many <laughs> a child's <laughs> dreams for generations to come, I do. Can't not even <laughs> <laughs> and uh, our lovely guest from our previous episode On Batteries Not Included Steph Brandhuber got in touch to say Another childhood favourite of mine The shoe being dipped in acid Caused serious trauma though You'll be unsurprised to know That I asked for a, sho- cho- a shoe toy for Christmas <laughs> When I was little Because I was so heartbroken by its death In the words
3: of Josh ben, In the words of ben, It's just a shoe That is not not
1: the tone in which I said it, you shit. (laughs) As always, if you've got any thoughts you want to share about this film or next week's film that Andy's going to reveal shortly, but if anyone has a working uh, internet connection, they can Google Amber Entertainment's filmography and, and, and see for themselves. You can share your thoughts with us uh, on Twitter at ramblin'amblin or email us at ramblin'aboutamblin at gmail.com. That's ramblin'aboutamblin at gmail dot com. Uh while you're there, you are very welcome to open up your podcast provider and rate, review, and subscribe to us. Um speaking of uh Speaking of reviews, Andy and I in the week we we discovered <laughs> we discovered a review for us on <laughs> iTunes that brought up a particular point that I kind of want to broach with you guys right now. So, so Jack, I'm gonna yeah, I'm going I'm Jack's gonna opinion. ask you this question cold. <laughs> All if right. someone says to you, "So and so laughs like a hyena," what would you think that to mean? Do your impression nah. of what you think a hyena would laugh like? Uh, it's putting you on the spot, I do realise, but I'm just—I'm curious to <laughs> know what you think a hyena would laugh like.
3: Well, okay, so immediately I go to the Lion King. The Problem is, yes, Lion yes, King, yes, they yes. laugh, they laugh like humans, like that. They—they they throw their head back and laugh. I would go to a Muttley laugh, like oh,
1: laugh okay, <laughs> okay right, right, right,
3: right, like that, um, which I don't think even particularly
1: well, that. well, well, for the the, the review. A very kind review we, we we said that they came to us from a, stars. Doesn't sound kind <laughs> they, 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 they came to us from the The lovely article that was in Film Stories That had us as British Film Podcast Of the Week uh, And they said Thank you once again Film thank Stories Thank you very much Film Stories <laughs> in particular M, thank you M. Um, and they said that they enjoyed the podcast. You know, uh, informative, sexy voices and whatnot. I mean, I, I may have added that last point, but Sex they voices, did say sexy
3: men. They sexy, did say the. <laughs> yeah, they
1: they good. said they they said that one of the hosts laughs like a hyena. Please stop. And Andy and I have been messaging a while because,
2: like the hyena from the Lion King, particularly they did, from the they Lion were specific. King, because
1: <laughs> I I think because I I laugh like. <laughs> which i thinks
2: how a, a hyena laughs whereas andy's much more
0: <laughs>
2: and but he, i think if you play the clip of the hyena i think they're talking yeah. about i think they're talking about no, me but I, <laughs> andy sent me a clip
1: i played it and i heard myself so maybe this is an exercise in egocentrism cuz i hear myself when i watch that clip and you hear yourself when we watch that clip ah, so i don't
2: i'll know. insert the clip here and so then the I'm, audiences I'm, can listen
3: I'm kind, of still, I'm kind of still reeling That you guys find something to laugh about In this podcast um, <laughs> Lost.
2: Piece of shit Piece of shit uh, Yeah may, Maybe you can make the decision for us listeners If, if I throw the clip in here Man that lousy
0: Mufasa do won't be able to sit for a week. <laughs> it's not
2: funny, Ed. <laughs>
0: hey, shut up!
2: But uh, very much appreciate the four star review, though Space Odds. Thank you very Ex- much, and, 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 we're, and we're glad you're we're glad you're enjoying the show. And we're, we're sorry we can't really help our laughs because clearly neither of us know which one of us is I the mean, guilty part. Spe- Space Odds,
1: please, <laughs> if if you're listening, if you if you are still listening, which you may not be because of our laughs, one of our laughs, um, please please do tweet us at <laughs> Rambling Amblin and let us know which one you mean because we're not upset. We just we are just so confused by it. I'm just curious. Right, can, we get, can we get
3: both of your laughs? Kind Of with with uh, you know, background ambience just to isolate them, okay. So okay. Andy, uh, if get you first, yeah. Andy, <laughs> okay, great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's difficult, difficult, really, isn't it? To say which one's more like a hyena,
1: I think either of those you desire, feasibly
2: be hyena laughs. I, I, I'd be more. I get Seth Rogen all the time, but like <laughs> not a hyena. <laughs> well, you know, you know, I, 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 I get
1: a lot of uh, Jimmy Carr at the moment. But you know, what one of the formative things for my life was when I was when I was a young young boy. When I was like uh, what fourteen, fifteen, I listened to a lot of the Ricky Gervais show, and obviously most of that podcast that is him going. Is <laughs> and I think you know when you listen to a podcast a lot, you do start to imitate the. Uh, Intonations in certain quarters of the hosts, so I think I absorbed the left from it. Maybe yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can carried it.
3: Can I do my audition as the third host of the uh, <laughs> yeah? Podcast? yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay, let me uh, go. Well, <laughs> it was a great ramble, but tell me, Andy and Josh, will you be rambling? What ambling ram? What am what am what ambling? film, are you rambling about next on the Rambling, Amblin' <laughs> pod... 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 pod...
2: Podcast? Pod, pod, That's good. <laughs> That's good. That's Thank good you for Steve. asking, Mr. Jack Buckley. <laughs> well? Uh, we hope you do jo- join us all for next time for we will be making a journey back millions of years to when dinosaurs walked the earth. No, we're not quite entering Jurassic Park yet. It's that other classic prehistoric Amblin' adventure. 1988's The Land Before Time, directed by our old pal, Dom Bluth. Mr. Bluth. And if you, <laughs> Mr. Bluth. And if you would like to watch the journey of Littlefoot and pals along with us ahead of the episode, and you don't happen to have it on disc. It is available to stream for those of you that have a Virgin Go subscription. Otherwise, you can rent or buy the film digitally via Apple TV, Amazon, Chili, Google Play, Microsoft Store, Sky Store. And YouTube.
1: I, I have mm. done my, my spiel, but, you know, obviously uh, tweet us at than Amblin, email us at rambling About Amblin yeah, at share. gmail.com. <laughs> this is a film that I think was pivotal to a lot of people our age in their childhoods, and it's one that I have to mm. admit, guys, I've never seen before. So, let's Ooh. see. Uh, you know, tune in next, well, in two weeks from now,
2: to hear me talking about how much I cried, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I always forget the fact that you've never seen the land before. Too, I, have, uh... I have many weird gaps in my film history. Sir, so I've not
3: patchwork. watched it in a long time, Josh. I've got one memory of this film, and it's when a dinosaur plops in some water and it makes uh, some ringlets in the water that reminded me of the ringlet on an orange juice carton. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's, that's, that's a mystery memory
0: that I have <laughs> 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 the, the, se- the searing
2: time. memory of the life before time <laughs> of oh my god uh,
1: we're, running long, oh. We're, we're running long I think this might be our longest episode e- even with, with yes, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> even with the heavy I look forward to this cut <laughs> it,
0: even with the edits I strongly
1: one,
3: advise seeing the first best thing in my life seeing the cartoon factory second best thing seeing Eddie's folding that bed Third best thing, thing, and the longest
2: ever rambling the Rambling episode.
1: All I can say is,
2: well, Andy thank you be for joining us. us. <laughs> for <this discussion. laughs> I will see how it goes. We'll see how it plays. We'll see how it plays at the end. We won't have a Michael Eisner going over my shoulder. It's too risky for us. I've said the F word twice. <laughs> I, I don't often swear on this
1: podcast. Ooh, this is the influence you are on me, Jack. Heck. <laughs> but no to, to echo what oh. andy said when i spoke over him uh, just now it was lovely to have you on dude thank you for joining us to talk about such a an interesting and uh complicated film as this
3: no it's a pleasure it, yeah it, man you it, brung it it's a pleasure, <laughs> like it, it's always it's always a lot of fun to talk about the things that you love this is very much something both my younger self and my older self love very much. So you get double double the me in this. Um I'd love to join you again <laughs> to talk about something else. I mean probably probably, oh, yeah, like, probably the house of a clock in its wall.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <You know>, <laughs> the house of a clock in like it. <laughs> Some time yet yeah. <laughs> You've already
1: mentioned that film More than anyone has since it came out So I Ever, think yeah. you've pretty much Got <laughs> that one time Most people give up <laughs> like
3: three words into that They're like the house with a clock mm.
2: uh, Yeah, The house with a clock In its walls They, they, yeah, <laughs> they leave it a clock uh, I
1: don't care. If it was a better word than clock I'd be interested but a clock I've got a house <laughs> with have, a clock on
3: house, my walls The house with a gun in its walls I'm like yeah <laughs>
2: Yes, <laughs> they're onto <under> something. <laughs> well, thank you once again, Jack. Is there any kind of social media that you you would like to share? Should the listeners be keen to see what else you have to say about anything and everything? Yeah,
3: yeah. You're welcome to follow me on Twitter dot com. Um, if if you enjoy just Shit. I don't know, just like drivel, <laughs> just absolute drivel. If you enjoy that, um, on uh Buckley Jack. Um, also, uh, if you've got an Amazon Prime subscription. Do watch uh, Greenland, starring Jarrett Butler, uh, the Smash the, the, the Disaster movie. Uh, as if I had a lot of fun not living in disastrous enough times at the moment. Um,
0: escape, escape. It's
2: cathartic. It's, yeah, uh... <laughs> escape It's apocalyptic movies. But at least it ain't this bad. Uh... You think that's bad? <laughs> at least bad. my house isn't on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, well yeah, thank you once again Jack I really look forward to inviting you back onto rambling in the future sometime, be it with a, for the house with a clock in its walls or something in the, oh, in something. In the near I
3: future Hopefully something <laughs> <to do. No,
1: laughs> soon I put you on the spreadsheet for that film so yeah, you're in the books now
2: You're in the books now, <laughs> the
0: books now. <laughs> oh.
2: And Joshua once again, a delight as always to see uh, you
1: Always a pleasure my friend Always a pleasure <laughs>
2: And of course, thank you to every single one of you, dear listeners. And we hope that you'll join us next time for our episode to the land before time. Until then, take care of each other and see you next time.
0: That's all, folks.
1: And that's
3: all,
0: folks. Mm, I like the sound of that. That's all, folks. <laughs>